0: Hi, everybody. I'm John from Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. And boy, is it great to be back here at the Oscars after two years away from the ceremony for various reasons. Don't you think,
1: Andy? John, I don't want to do this.
0: <laughs> I don't see Andy out here. He's, where is he? Come on, John. <laughs> he must be having a costume malfunction. Uh, anyway... Uh, we've got a lot of fun stuff planned. No,
1: no, we don't. We really don't.
0: I thought we would harken back to those great old Billy Crystal-style song parodies no, 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 about no, the no. different nominees. No, no, no. It's time for Babylon. That movie sure does seem to Babylon. John, that's
1: like 20 years ago they used to do that. They don't do that anymore. Everything, everywhere, all at once. That doesn't even make any sense. But John, what? just come out of the skit. Let's, well, let's just get on with it. Maybe we
0: could just get on with it, but of course we first have to hear the reading of the nominees.
1: <sighs> Fine, I suppose.
0: All Quiet on the Western Front. Music by Volker Bertelmann.
1: Babylon. Music by Justin Hurwitz.
0: The Banshees of Inisharan, Music by Carter Burroughs.
1: Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Music by Sun Lux.
0: The Fablements. Music by John Williams.
1: Okay, Andy. Do you have the envelope? <sighs> no, of course I don't have the envelope. John, enough already. Come on. What? Come just get get out here into the reverb. It's nice. I don't want to. Why? The Oscars is already so self-aware about being lame. It seems like making fun of it is just playing into their hands. I don't want to be part of it. But, What's even the point of this? We we're going to... Let's just do our show.
0: All right, fine. I guess it's just... I guess we should just do the podcast anyway already by this point.
1: Yes, we should just do the podcast. Yes.
0: Come on. Ah party pooper Mm -hmm. fine fine here i am here i am just here in the regular old podcast with you andy Mm -hmm. Uh, hello all right i guess it's oscar time Mm. welcome
1: it feels like any other time but thank you for welcoming me (laughs) welcome to you john
0: well i'll take it
1: it's that magical time of the year
0: all right so you watched all these movies uh how magical was it for you
1: (laughs) (laughs) it was interesting but interesting that's a cagey word. It had its highs and it had its lows. <laughs> I took a lot of notes because the podcast is always haunting me in my brain while I'm watching these movies. I try not to let it haunt me and distract me from the movie, but it's there.
0: I hope that that's true of our listeners as well, that our podcast is always haunting <laughs> their brains.
1: I think I did pretty well with not letting it Spoil the experience I would have had if I were you know, just a regular civilian getting to watch these with a light heart (laughs) I think I just watched them for real But I also took notes Mm. and I took a lot of notes and I thought we can talk about all this stuff But when I stand back and look at all the stuff I wrote it's hard to see I think maybe we don't need to talk about all of this stuff Maybe there's a way to condense the talks into the big picture and then the five little pictures.
0: Yeah, that's fair So let me, for an opening gambit about the big picture, let me come out with this. I think that this is fairly easily the worst crop of nominees that we have yet to consider.
1: A strong opener. I am not ready to concur because I haven't thought it through. I'm also certainly not ready to contradict it. Let me think through our prior options here. Is this the fifth of these that we're doing?
0: I think this is the sixth, Andy.
1: What was the first year was the one with Dunkirk and Uh uh, uh and, The Shape of Water?
0: And Phantom Thread. That was our first one. Let me just look
1: online. The Shape of Water, Dunkirk, Phantom Thread, Star Wars Jedi, and Three Billboards. And then Black Panther, Black Klansman, Beale Street, Isle of Dogs, Mary Poppins. Right, right. Then Joker, Little Women, Marriage Story, 1917, Star Wars, Skywalker. Uh Uh-huh. And then Soul, The Five Bloods, Mank, Minari, News of the World. Sure. And then, most recently, Dune, Don't Look Up, and Kanto, Parallel Mothers, Power of the Dog. Okay. I guess... I might agree, but it's not a slam dunk obvious thing for me. Okay, I mean,
0: now that you've read out all the previous years, and I'm going, maybe I'm remembering uh, crankiness I had in those years as well. But uh, gosh, I feel cranky. I'm sorry, and I hope it's not too off-putting to start off on this foot. But I came away from the task of watching all these movies not thrilled with what either the state of scoring is in today's Hollywood or what the Academy thinks the state of scoring is.
1: Yes. As far as the latter, Mm -hmm. I was thinking, from the beginning, this podcast we're doing we could have made it a podcast where we nominate our own favorite scores and talk about them because we've got so much to say about our pet beloved scores. And we opted not to do that. We opted to get assigned stuff so that we could just be surprised by things and have to react to them and work through our reactions. And so now we've got this system where we get elaborately randomized movies just thrust upon us and then we have to deal with them, whatever they are. And that is what the Academy seems like. (laughs) A huge machine for generating a basically random list of five movies so that we have five uh, arbitrary things to have to talk about. And in that spirit, sure, now we have five movies to talk about. (laughs) We can have conversations about them. But if the idea is these are the best, we figured out that these are the best because we've really weighed it carefully, we the Academy. Um, Boy, (sighs) Uh, I don't even really have the patience anymore for explaining how they may have strayed from the yeah. task. Like, that's not what's going on.
0: Yeah, it's not what's going on. And I was particularly chagrined by it this year because it's so clearly not what's going on. You know, with certain categories, that is what's going on. They, they understand if you're going to give an award for the best special effects, then the movies that have the best special effects you know you know which ones those are. The big summer blockbusters get nominated in that category and that category only because that's what they're made of and that's where the highest practicing of that particular craft gets done. And it's not like cognitively dissonant for them to nominate movies that the other more loftier categories would never deign to consider. When it comes to score... I just keep getting the feeling that the score award is this like stocking stuffer that they give to movies that they already want to give a lot of other presents to. Like they just stuff it in there. Yeah, yeah, this one too. Sure, it was a good movie. So this one, why not? I don't feel like they are thinking about what the task of writing music for a movie is separately from you know, just one of the movies that people like this year.
1: Yeah, I think that there's not really thinking about what best means. (laughs) The thing you said about special effects, there's just a naturalness to saying, oh, that movie that had big, prominent, elaborate special effects was the one with the best special effects. Right. And not sinking into this humane and appreciative attitude that I try to take on this show of, well, every movie has something special and everything's an effect. I feel burdened with this podcast in that you can put any music in front of me and say, talk about it, appreciate it. And I can do that. Anything <laughs> is something. Right, but
0: everything is everywhere.
1: All at once. If you make me watch the commentary tracks and the behind the scenes footage and the interviews with the people who made a movie, I have admiration and sympathy. And it's fascinating always, no matter what I thought of the movie. And I feel like, why should that be what we're doing in this show? I just wanted to talk about whether we like things, like whether they're good. And you know, for the Oscar episode, I don't want to have to squeeze through the eye of a needle to have a conversation about things that I would never ordinarily have a conversation about. Yeah. So I propose to you, John, Okay. that we just have the conversation that we have on this side of the needle. And if that's a short conversation, so be it.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, maybe it's possible that we could have a short conversation. I don't know recent evidence to the contrary.
1: Yeah, not just recent. Five years of evidence to the contrary. We are constantly coming up against this inability to feel that we're done until we've talked too much.
0: I will say for this set of five movies that they kind of relate and point to each other a little bit in ways.
1: I always love the game of that. I didn't come up with any connections, so...
0: Well, you know, like, I felt like uh, the Fablemans multiplied by everything everywhere all at once equals Babylon. (laughs) Uh. (laughs) You know, something like that, and uh, <laughs> uh, all quiet on the Western Front, like minus everything, everywhere, all at once, equals the banshees of anisheeran.
1: I, I don't know. I feel like you're kind of cheating here with everything, everywhere, all at once. Which I am. It's like infinity am. symbol. That once you divide it, you <laughs> could get anywhere.
0: <laughs> all right. Well, I feel like there are other equations to be made.
1: All right. I'll be interested in the arithmetic that you can work out as we go. But let's. Let's just start getting it over with.
0: <laughs> <laughs> a great way to start. Hey, everybody, let's start getting the show over with.
1: All right, John, your yeah. favorite part of doing the Oscars show. <laughs> ooh, ooh! Is it, is it alphabetization corner already? Oh, here comes that music from Don't Look Up. It means that it's alphabetization <laughs> corner, the show with a terrible title. John. Yes. We always do these in alphabetical order because mm-hmm. that's how Oscar lists them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One of these films is not an English language film. That's true. However, it is listed on Oscars website and most sources as though it were an English language film. That's right. Because it has uh, an English language company as its distributor, I guess. Is that why?
0: Well, also, it's a remake of a very famous and Oscar-winning early film, which is an adaptation of a well-known novel that uh, is not an English language novel originally, but that is, you know, well-known in the English-speaking world as this title.
1: Yeah, but that's just circular. Why is the English-speaking world in charge of the alphabet when it comes to this title? <laughs> and then we've got the next question. Well, if the name of this movie is Im Westen Nichts Neues, is Im an alphabetizable word? I think it is. An English in would be, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So,
0: well, the answer is that yes, it probably should be alphabetized under I, but it's not. So there. <laughs> now let's turn our attention to All Quiet on the Western Front.
1: Im Westen Nichts Neues, or All Quiet on the Western Front, was written by Edward Berger, Ian Stokel, and Leslie Patterson, based on the novel by Erich Maria Remark. It was produced by Malte Grunert, Daniel Dreyfus, and Edward Berger, and it was directed by Edward Berger.
0: It stars Felix Kammerer as young Paul Boimer, who enlists in the German army in World War I with a naive excitement, only to have his romantic notions of war quickly crushed by the brutal and inhumane realities of the trenches. The film concentrates on the closing days of the war, juxtaposing the armistice negotiations with the meaningless brutality of the fighting.
1: Music by Volker Bertelmann. John, it's been almost two and a half hours that this movie's been going on, <laughs> but now we finally reached the end of it. How was that for you?
0: Well, it was not fun. I mean, it didn't want to be fun, right? Wanted to be super not fun.
1: Okay, so first lesson we've learned, World War I, not fun. Yeah, 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 yeah. And now I ask you, John, have we learned anything else? <laughs> what did this do for you, if anything, other than make you feel unfun?
0: Well, it made me think of the two previous big spectacle war movies that we have talked about on previous editions of this Oscar show, which were, as we mentioned, Dunkirk and then 1917, mm-hmm. 1917 being about the same war, and Dunkirk, not, but, you know, similar idea.
1: When we talked about 1917, we couldn't help but say, well, of this certainly reminded us of Dunkirk.
0: Yeah, and I liked 1917 a little bit less than I liked Dunkirk, which I liked very much. And I liked uh, this one less, again, as compared with 1917. I mean, there's a lot of things to recommend it. It does a lot of stuff well. It's impressive in many regards. I just, uh, it's so grim and gruesome and awful by choice, by design, that it was hard for me to get into. And uh, I mean, what else is there?
1: (laughs) I disliked it significantly below how I felt about those other two movies. Mm -hmm. I disliked it with the kind of heated dislike one can only feel about something that, as you said, has a lot to recommend it. If this had been a sloppy production that wasn't impressive and obviously affecting and visceral and beautiful and all of that, then I wouldn't have been as agitated by how I also disliked it. But I was.
0: And wasn't it done like on a kind of impressively low budget for such an affair?
1: 20 million, it says here.
0: Yeah, 20 million. That's pretty low.
1: Yeah, for the scale of the thing. For the
0: scale of what, you know, cast of thousands and uh, production of millions.
1: It gives a sense of production power. Sure. It looks as full as you could imagine such a movie looking.
0: It really does. And nothing bad to say about the performances. Very well done.
1: I was irked by it. And... Mm. It is, like I say, because it drew me in with its power for much of its runtime until I finally realized that it wasn't going to make good on all of that. Hmm. It was a movie ostensibly about the tragedy of the trauma of war that didn't seem interested in anything other than the trauma of war and how to depict that in as spectacular a way as possible. and my clock of waiting for them to express something humanist as the alternative and the context for this to make it a philosophical statement just ran out before the movie was over. When it hit me that they weren't going to do anything other than kind of this director was going to take his stab at things he'd seen in other war movies and make them even more of a punch in the gut and more impressive and more frightening, I started to get angry that it's not a sufficient vision for taking this on. Hmm. That's, That's my take on this movie.
0: I'm sympathetic to that take. I wasn't quite as (laughs) riled up, I guess. I, I just kind of got depressed and shrank away from it in response. But I know what you're talking about, yeah.
1: And the music, you know, I wanted to keep my habitual complaint about how music that's just a bunch of drones, like I don't care about it enough to care about something as a score. I was going to actually kind of just push that to the side and just let it be a, yeah, up here, I have this thing to say again. But then when that felt to me like a profound feeling on the part of the movie, that there was no voice of the human spirit against whom this whole depiction of war was an offense... There was no speaking. There was no singing. There was no presence of the soul that was being harmed by this. There was just a kind of murmuring of, oh, it's harm, it's harm, it's sad, it's bad. I felt like I have to talk about that now. Yeah. The way that that felt like a shortcoming to me in all those other movies, go back to all our other Oscar episodes. It's just a recurring theme with me. In modern scoring, a drone makes you feel stuff, but that doesn't mean it's really doing what music can do. And here I was aching for someone to show up and say the things that music could say. And it was so clear that the director and the composer following the director's intentions just weren't going to do that. They didn't have any intention to do that. And that means that the movie was a big frustration for me.
0: Yeah, well, here's where I meet you right where you are. With my reaction to the score, it made me annoyed to say the least. And I was thinking about you. I was thinking about stuff that you said in prior Oscar episodes, because I feel like this is the movie where I most keenly felt the complaint that you have made in past years.
1: Yay! I was going to say, John, you always say, oh, but Andy, I think it really worked. And I I respect the artistry. I respect the craftsmanship. I was going to be like, did you catch up to me yet? Are we there? Yes. Yeah. It feels good.
0: Good. Yeah, because, yeah, that's exactly right. This score wants to stay out of the way of the picture. Fine, I get that instinct. It's reasonable. You know, I remember some teacher telling me, you know, the whole experience of the audience watching a movie is like a glass of water. It can only get filled up so much. And if there's so much that the audience has to take in visually, there's not room left for there to be that much music to add into it. Fine, that's a good thing to keep in mind. So seemingly out of a sense of restraint and not wanting to get in the way and not wanting to be heavy handed, this music treats things with a very soft touch and it's not there a lot of the time and it doesn't have anything to say when it is there. It's just this mushy ambience and it's fine. I felt like the execution of just some kind of nothing mushy ambience was fine. But yes, I think it is just some mushy ambience where music could have and should have been. It was too understated, and I just kept wanting it, like you said, to state something instead. And it's true. In previous years, for previous movies that relied a lot on synthetic drones and ambient sound noises, non-orchestral things. Indeed in the past you have been more skeptical of them than I have and I have had good things to say about movies like like Dunkirk which is made almost entirely out of extra musical sounds. But I was impressed by that because of the incredible care that was taken to make those extra musical sounds and to make them match up with the picture. I felt like there was a real achievement in caring for the audience's experience that was done with these non-orchestral methods. Similarly with Dune last year. Yes, there's an immense amount of extra musical sounds that were incredibly Carefully crafted and I thought that they matched up with the picture so well that it really was an accomplishment that I Responded to in this movie. I just felt like it was a bunch of off-the-shelf sounding Drone noises that did not match up with the picture did not support the picture did not connect with what was happening on screen And I'm sorry. It did not sound like a lot of care had been put into them.
1: You know, I don't even need to go that far. I don't think I felt that it was all off the shelf and that's why it didn't matter to me. These were just as nice a uh, selection of drones and I did do a little of my homework and watch a couple of interviews with Volker Bertelmann, known as Hauschka, but not on this movie.
0: Yeah, he's a German, you know, experimental music artist who performs and records under the name Hauschka.
1: hmm he does a lot with prepared piano and he's done mm-hmm. other movies. Right. Here's some Hauschka. And in looking up stuff about him, I'll admit I didn't know about Haushka prior to this.
0: Haushka could you? Uh, I... Houshka, uh, it's not worth it. Never mind.
1: You work on that. It'll just get back to me when it's ready. <laughs> I found out that he started out in a hip-hop band in the early 90s. Why and, not? Uh, this is him on keyboards.
2: Out on the ocean with the body in motion Was the last time to catch a laugh
1: at the sunshine to the glass, but can't feel maybe the that's actually so demeaning to him That I shouldn't play it on here <laughs> Hey, it's fair game um,
0: Also, maybe you should have put this in the movie
1: <laughs> No, but seriously I think he did a lovely job You do? Yeah, these string textures uh, I thought they were fine Are fine, yeah, they're fine They're touching They're touching in the way that Things can be touching without Speaking, you know Last year, I said a thing about Dune that, you know, a hypnotist who gets you to fall asleep is using words, but let's not call that best writing because it's just kind of a use of words. Another metaphor occurred to me while I was watching this movie. If the Oscars nominated the person who made, like, ghostly whispering sounds in a haunted house movie, like, (laughs) as best actor, you'd be like, well, they were acting and that did spook me, so... Okay. But there's another thing I care more about in relating to acting. And it's not to demean the skill of the person who made the ghosty noises. It's just that we can be affected by acting in so many dimensions other than just the one of whether they sound (laughs) And I can be affected by music in so many dimensions other than just whether the timbre of the drone was selected to make me feel a little weepy or heavy hearted or worried. But he does a nice job of that. Here are some other things he does a nice job of picking out. Like, let's just name the stuff because when you watch those interviews, as always, when they say, you know, I, I dug through my closet of stuff and I found this thing and I thought that would really serve the movie. And it did. Great, that's great. So the thing he found in his closet was a harmonium that had belonged to his great grandmother.
0: Yeah. Okay. Let's come back to the harmonium because I think that that is like the only actual idea that he had All right. for what to do in the movie. What I want to convey about this style of music, this probably isn't fair. It's certainly not fair to Volker Bertelmann, but uh, but I want to put this out there. Making music that sounds like this is so easy these days (laughs) it's it's so easy the synth instruments that you can get that everybody has now there are are menus full of sounds that have already been designed that you load up. They all have evocative names like, oh, I'll load up this one. It's called Fog of War or something like that. And I, you put it in and then you just hold your finger down on a key on the keyboard and it goes like it has a whole evolution of sound that it's generating out. And there's parameters that you can change. You can make it go more than or you can put it through a filter. Or you can, like it's all. Right there, and you're just picking it off of a shelf. Now, this guy Hauschke, this guy Bertelmann. He's an experimental music producer. I'm sure he's got his own proprietary synth instruments that he designed. And that's, you know, interesting and great. But it sounds to me exactly the same as the stuff that I can just load up and hold my finger down and get to hear. And then you layer a few of those together. And then you put it over any visual that you want and call it a score. John,
1: I've resisted this in the past, but I think you're welcome. You're invited to do it now if you want to make this conversation... Be a little eerier, (laughs) a little bit more oppressed. If you want to score the next (laughs) section of the podcast, go for it. Thanks,
0: Andy. Maybe I will. Look, hear how, like, ooh, uh, twisted and uh, gut-wrenchingly poignant and otherworldly this soapbox rant that I'm having sounds. Yeah, I'm just holding my one finger down on a key on the keyboard and it's just doing that.
1: Yeah, but you're also sad, right? So... (laughs) that that one finger best actor
0: <laughs> here's another spot i wanted that i like sat up when it happened in the movie there are tanks you know yeah at the end of the war that's when they came up with tanks
1: that was about when i started realizing oh i think i'm against this movie
0: <laughs> so the tank comes and it's driving at the trench And like when it gets to it, you hear this noise. It's a riser, for crying out loud. It's a stringless riser. What's a riser? It's a very standard synth instrument thing to do. You hear them especially in trailers all the time. It's a thing that goes... You can, you know, choose from menus of them. There's ones that are string-sounding. There are ones that are brass-sounding. There's ones that are more synth-sounding. And you can mix and match them together I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. Nothing wrong with doing it. I've used it because sometimes, sometimes you got to use it. That's what people expect nowadays. But again, it's a thing that you put your finger and it goes and this thing happens. And so here, yeah, there's a string list that goes I don't know in this case. He had an orchestra for this movie. Mm -hmm. Maybe he actually instructed the strings to create this. Maybe it's not uh, hold your finger down and let it happen sound that's happening. But it sounds like it. It sounds exactly like what I get when I load up the thing that does this. And I'm also sure that that's why he put it there, because it's just one of the things that already exist that you can just paint by number and choose to put in there. I sound like you, Andy, because this is the kind of thing that you've said in previous conversations about synth noises. Like when we were talking about Terminator, you said, you know, picking a patch out of a menu and then putting it in your movie because maybe that's the right thing to put in your movie. It's fine, but is it composing? You know, and I wanted to defend it, sure, but... I feel like I'm in the same spot with you now. Just like, this sounds fine. It sounds fine. It's like I could do this. Anybody who buys these synth instruments can now just do this. By the way, if anybody listening wants me to do it for them, I'll do it cheaper than (laughs) (laughs) Volkerberg.
1: Certainly now that he's won a BAFTA, and maybe we'll win an Oscar. Mm.
0: That's what I meant by off-the-shelf sounds. It's fine, but Oscar made me think about this as maybe the best, and this is what happens to me.
1: Yeah, we had some venting to do. Uh, It's clear about this. I do want to be clear. I actually don't mind that music can be... You can press one finger and it's effective. If it's in the context of a movie where I didn't expect someone to press one finger and have (laughs) it be effective, I would be stirred by that, it's stirring. If you turn off the lights and I just lie down and you put on music in a room and it's these drones, I will be affected by it, you know, all things being equal. But in a movie, it has to be part of an intention. And the intention here was stunted. And I read something in an interview just today that I thought, oh, maybe that is important context where Bertelmann was asked, what were the biggest challenges for you on this project? And he said, quote, the biggest challenge I think was to find music that is not pathetic and that is not heroic in a way that actually helps the attitude of a film that is shot out of a German perspective. We are still in that area where we have responsibility and a lot of shame and guilt because of the things that we brought to other countries. So to actually keep that responsibility in the music hmm. and present it in a self-confident way rather than being too shy, that was the biggest challenge. And I read that and I thought, oh, they self-constrained. They didn't dare to say anything human because it would sound insufficiently guilty or something.
0: Yeah, I, I kind of feel that. I mean, that's sort of... The sense that I got about this restraint, let's not clog up the emotional bandwidth of the audience. Like it just wanted to lay low and put some fog here and there.
1: So I actually tried an experiment where I watched some scenes from this and I put on. So here's the music from the movie. Uh huh. No, just kidding. That's music from 1917. So I put that on. Okay, so here's the music that's actually in the movie. No, just kidding. That's music from News of the World that we talked about. I
0: I was thinking of News of the World because it has some of the same just textural wash stuff in it. Yeah,
1: Right, so the Bertelman music... No, just kidding, that's music from Joker. Yep. So then I put these things... No, just kidding, that's music from Dune. I put these against the opening montage of a prior young boy soldier, you know, dying meaninglessly on the battlefield and then being ground through the machine of war that's recycling Mm -hmm. his uniform. This is the opening sequence, and his uniform is pulled off of the corpse and brought, you know, to be cleaned and then tailored, and then it's going to be reissued to our young protagonist. Each of these heavy drones worked. Mm -hmm. Now, each of them had slightly different emotional meaning, and... On dissecting the drones, they probably have a lot to say about that because it really does affect the dramatic meaning of the thing in this subtle way. But. It also kind of revealed to me that any of those would have been a legitimate version of this movie because this movie didn't ever land a statement that contradicted any of these things. Yeah. It's all interchangeable. It's interchangeable scene to scene. It's interchangeable score to score. Yep. It's just kind of a necessary element of the off-the-shelf version of a war movie, which is that, of course, it shall feel somber. It shall feel like you're looking at something hard. Gosh, this is... This is really very grim. How do we feel about all of this trauma? Golly, bad. <laughs> I'm only making fun of it because the next sentence was missing. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's not enough. And especially in this movie where there were so many times when there were things in the movie that to me seemed indefensible on behalf of an anti-war movie. Hmm. Why when we see flamethrowers incinerating people do we hear this rhythmic drum it's a tasteless inheritance from other movies to my mind I'm willing to listen to a defense of it but to me it felt like I'm not gonna give in okay and why was there the Jurassic Park shot of the shaking water before (laughs) we see the tanks as though like You can't believe what's coming now. It's going to blow you away. I felt like it was all directed at the audience to impress them rather than to communicate anything truly sympathetic to the characters.
0: Yeah, you're right. Let's come back to the music that actually is in this movie.
1: Okay, right, sorry.
0: (laughs) For that opening sequence that you conducted, I think the very telling experiment of putting all this other music on top of. But the music that is on top of that sequence in this movie by Volker Brodromant is this three-note figure accompanied by, yes, a lot of airy ambience and just, you know, wishy-mushy stuff. But the salient feature is this three-note figure that he is playing on a harmonium which is an old-fashioned kind of pump organ in fact this specific pump organ belonged to his great-grandmother and it actually is a period appropriate instrument apparently uh, if you read interviews that's why he thought to put it in there because it's something that existed in this era now i ask you andy does this sound like it is from this era?
1: No. no. The other thing you hear in interviews is that when he sent it to the director, the director said, it sounds like Led Zeppelin, it's great.
0: Yeah. Well, it sounds like Led Zeppelin because it's not just the sound of the organ. He's processed it through a series of Marshall guitar amps and turned up the distortion knob. So it sounds like a modern synthy noise. You know, he did other stuff to it, he processed it. It's not an acoustic organ sound, and it doesn't sound like one. And when I heard this, I sat up and I said out loud in a room by myself, Oh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like, oh, we're doing this. Okay. This is a modern synthetic sounding thing. And in this opening sequence, I was kind of willing to go along with it because as you described, this is a depiction of the machine of war, this awful dystopian factory process by which young corpses are recycled and have their raw materials sent back out to the battlefield, you know, awful stuff. And I thought that he was reaching for a futuristic sounding dystopian nightmare scape, kind of a depiction of the machine of war. That's what's playing over this room full of women at sewing machines, processing these uniforms. I thought, okay, that's kind of a cool idea, maybe. It kind of just doesn't go far enough with it. It's just these three notes again and again and again. Which there's some value to the repetition, but it's never really clear why it's repeating and It doesn't really commit to the idea of a dystopic machine. It's just some mush that, you know, he held his fingers down with three fingers that he put on top of them.
1: I thought it was better than that and had potential that wasn't realized.
0: Yeah, it had potential. I thought it definitely had potential in that, yes, that was not realized. It just wasn't fully committed to that the idea of restraint, let's not say too much, let's not get in the way of the visual, won out over the idea of actually doing something and writing music.
1: Well, interesting about let's not get in the way of the visual, it really feels like when it shows up there, it's about as violent to the visual as it can be. Mm. And I had that thought before hearing these interviews and then in the interviews he said his directive from the director was he wanted music that would destroy the images hmm. this first gesture that I have to imagine is why people are talking about the score and nominating it for things yeah. is striking in I think that way yeah it slashes it slashes at the movie and at the audience, Mm -hmm. and...
0: And I did feel that slash. I felt like a sharp, anachronistic discongruity, and I felt like, okay, I gotta reckon with this now, and then you're about to say that it didn't follow through with it.
1: He tried to follow through in that three notes going, middle, top, bottom. That becomes the theme of the movie. That's the only recurring motif that I was able to note. But he writes other music that's also da-da-da. Like this thing that comes back several times for Mm -hmm. scenes of not battle. Another thing the director specifically asked for was he wanted to hear snares that were played by someone who couldn't actually play snares. (laughs) Bertelmann says he worked on this sound for a while and I also appreciated this as a striking gesture that sticks with you and makes an impression.
0: It definitely is again a slash through the movie and through your experience of it. That's
1: right. It's a very similar effect of slashing at you. The snap pits that you keep hearing also, this kind of rattling and some other rattling noises that I think he sort of implied were noises that his harmonium made when he put the microphone inside. Mm Mm-hmm the effect of these things cutting into a moment you thought you were having, doing some violence to you, to the people involved. It's just an old hat technique by the end of the movie. I see that people have said this movie was an incredibly powerful experience for them. It's possible that I just put up my defenses by the end of viewing it because I'd lost faith in it. It had lost my trust. Maybe if I had stayed open, each of those slaps would have been a fresh, a meaningful experience for me, but I couldn't get through two and a half hours being truly open to being slapped that many times by someone who I didn't feel had earned the right to slap me. Mm -hmm. And when it was being gentle, There's music throughout that's in this holy minimalism style, a kind of Arvo Pertz stuff where it happens over and over, it's got feeling in it. There's some slightly more involved string writing in a couple places like this. (laughs) Which are usually against the scene in that it's when the characters are acting happy and then you hear this sort of chamber music of sadness to remind you that actually the situation is sad. What I have to say about all of it is that all of this effort is going toward embroidering and elaborating on the thing that would have gone without saying and needed no music to come across. Except for this element of the speaking across time, that seems interesting because it seems like it's saying Mm -hmm. from the present, what does this thing in the past look like to us? What do we know about it now? What does it mean to us? And then, uh, as far as I know, the answer is nothing. I've got to get on with making this war movie. It it never makes good on that. There's no answer.
0: Yeah, that's how I felt. It never made good on it. It doesn't provide an answer. It contents itself with just being some background mush and i feel like this score really is patting itself on the back for staying out of the way we mustn't disturb we mustn't upstage the serious important war movie make way for the movie says the music i will stand back over here and the academy said yes that could be the best music (laughs) of the year
1: what's up next well from here on out john the alphabet is utterly unambiguous what a relief next up is b a b babylon Okay.
0: Babylon was produced by Mark Platt, Matthew Pluff, and Olivia Hamilton, and it was written and directed by Damien Chazelle.
1: It follows a handful of characters, including behind-the-scenes go-getter Manny Torres, played by Diego Calva, starlet Nellie Leroy, played by Margot Robbie, leading man Jack Conrad, played by Brad Pitt, and others, as they navigate the changing landscape and insane decadence of 1920s and 30s Hollywood as sound comes to the movie business.
0: Music by Justin Hurwitz. Yeah.
1: That's an on-air sigh. I just, when you're editing, keep that. Just a note.
0: <laughs> I see. You have some sighing to do, Andy?
1: No, I've done my sighing. I'm ready to talk, I guess.
0: All right, talk. You start. All
1: right, I'll start by saying this. Mm-hmm. In doing this show, yes. I think we've both learned, we've come to really believe, yes. the principle of the show, that hating things is less interesting than it might feel. And <laughs> I am worried about being... Very boring indeed, so (laughs) let's try to keep this short, right?
0: I mean, we say that so often, and look where it gets us, but if it's possible, I'm all for keeping this short. You know
1: who wasn't? Yep, Yeah. I do. So in the previous segment, I said that I was irked, I think I said, in a way that I can only be angry at something that has value and power and some qualities to recommend it. And Mm -hmm. so too does this movie have some qualities to recommend it that only fueled my fire.
0: I agree. I think there are a few good things in this movie. I think there are some good sequences that have their intended effect that landed for me.
1: I think that there are some good ambitions in this movie. And the fact that such an ambitious movie was produced in such a flashy way is i think a good Mm -hmm. and i can almost in a certain frame of mind stand back and say i approve of this movie's essential scope nature and flair and sort of glad that someone made this movie but that's why i hate it i hate it (laughs) (laughs) because it's uh, it's just (laughs) awful yeah, I, uh,
0: I'm there. I'm I'm there with you, Andy. Let's just be here for a little while and then leave.
1: John, another thing I hate. Mm-hmm. And you know, I don't use the word hate lightly. I don't use it on this show very often. It's true. Because as I said, we've learned it's not really a direction worth going. And when you hate something, usually what's better is to uh, investigate it further until your feelings become more complex. But I started down that path. I watched some interviews and honestly, it wasn't helping. It just started making me sad. <laughs> Um, Another thing I hate is the music.
0: I think that the music in this movie is not what I hate most strongly in it. I was sort of willing to, as you say, recognize some of the ambitions behind the music. I kind of grokked some of the things that it thought it was doing. I just think that the egotism of the whole endeavor made it impossible for music to be functional in such a thing. And... I do hate the way it is deployed. All right, let's 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 just run through this quickly, okay? I thought that the best part of this movie—let's start here, all right? Yeah, yeah. I thought that the best part of the movie was the extended set piece sequence that was the day on the silent film sets out in the dusty wilderness of the L.A. suburbs and the raucous ramshackle combination of all of the silent pictures that they were making— all of the zany things that had to go into them that wound up paying off in silent filmmaking success. That's the kernel of this movie that I think was worthwhile.
1: Yeah, when I've gone back to try to think about what the intentions were, what the vision was, I do keep going back to that scene. It seems like the nugget at the center of the movie was this vision of chaos and sex violence and craziness all around, and then the camera captures one perfect tear and the tear lives forever and that's Hollywood for you. And I thought that is kind of a vision and that sequence is the one that kind of puts it on the screen. So yes, I think that's probably the most successful part.
0: And I thought that this was the most successful that the music got as well. This is mostly scored with what is essentially the main theme of the movie. which comes back again and again in many different forms, but I felt like this form was its natural habitat. It's hard for me to imagine that this wasn't how it was originally conceived, this thing, because everything else seems like a pale imitation of it to me. He posits that there were musicians off-camera next to each of these back-to-back productions that, you know, were giving mood and music quote unquote, (laughs) quote unquote taken from singing in the rain, we'll get back to that. But that's what you know. Donald O'Connor is playing improvised accompaniment on the piano next to while the silent movie is being filmed. And he posits an expansion of that, that every silent movie has their own version of Donald O'Connor playing the piano and they get more and more elaborate. And I was even kind of willing to go along with him on this absurd extrapolation from that, that there was a real live full orchestra out in the dust playing, you know, Night on Bald Mountain for this war scene.
1: The whole sequence, the whole movie, is a fantasy on various historical facts. I don't think that there were outdoor sets like this in 1926 or whatever year this is supposed to be. That's like in 1905 they would do that. And there wouldn't be sets 10 feet apart making completely different movies. It's like a circus version of Hollywood. So, yes, like you said, we go along with the absurdity.
0: And the centerpiece of it is that for this one production that's happening, the musical consort assigned to it is this three-piece combo of a berry sax and a trap set and a rhythm guitar. And music! This little round and round we go -go merry-go-round of honking, churning along energy, I thought this was a cool idea, that there's this live trio and they're just honking along And this Honkin' Along gets to score what becomes a montage of all the different mundane necessities that go behind the scenes in movie making, and all of the people cursing and yelling and running around. I thought, this kind of works, and I was into it. The energy that he wanted this music to have, I felt it.
1: You know, you're right. It was too late for me to be into it, but looking at just that sequence, yeah, kind of fits. ¶¶
0: Yeah, and it made me feel the jangly dirtiness of everything and that that was cool and romanticized, something that was being celebrated. I'll take it. What I won't take and what I was never able to take was the use of this same melody as a love theme. I'm sorry this is not a love theme. This is not a romantic theme. This is not a theme that conveys the poignancy of the march of time and doomed romance, whatever else he wants it to mean.
2: Well, in 30 years, you won't be a big star anymore. This it is,
0: it is actually the, the first time what? that we BKM. hear it in the movie when Margot Robbie's character and Diego Calva's character first You're meet outside of this one incredibly minute. debaucherous yeah. old Hollywood party. Your contract with?
2: Don't
0: have one. Yeah, okay, uh, I think you want to become a star.
2: Honey, you don't become a star. You either are one or you ain't. I am
0: This is the first time we hear this melody and it's being played on these out of tune pianos and I'm sorry it's weak it doesn't have the wistfulness and the breath to do everything that he wants it to do no matter how out of tune these pianos are wink, wink.
1: yes and I will now extend to say I think all of the melodies in this score are weak to the point of being worthless they're just barely melodies that thing Da, 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 da. That's already a lot of. Da, da, da. <laughs> What's going to happen now? Da, 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 da. And then let's repeat. <laughs> Boy, that's really not a lot of anything where are we going to go with this what's the full sentence nowhere we're not going anywhere
0: we're not going anywhere because it is a loop of the same sequence of chords which describes all of the other melodies that get montageified.
1: that's right it describes all the melodies none of them has a charm or an arc or a statement to make
0: I felt like the other melody had a little bit more to it just as a melody. It sounded like it was kind of, could have been a small slice out of like the Umbrellas of Cherbourg for a second. The
1: one that goes da 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 da
0: Exactly, yeah. It sounds like a Michelle Legrand tune. But again, it doesn't have an arc, as you say, because it's just the same circle of four chords around and around and around. And we're always back where we started.
1: The chords, yet every piece of material has the simplest possible harmonization and then repeats it incessantly and when you start down the path of listening to the interviews and what were they going for and even if i hadn't listened to the interviews it comes through in the movie the idea was that these parties the bacchanalian excess would be best depicted by emulating modern day dance club music which is you know extremely repetitive and simplistic and mostly about just hitting every one of the four beats all the time And I think that's just, first of all, a bad idea.
0: I thought that was an okay idea right at the beginning for the opening party. Again, I kind of bought it at first. It's very evident right away that this is, you know, despite the fact that it's being played allegedly right in front of you with this, you know, jazz big band lineup, that this is very anachronistically arranged. And the tunes are harmonically static in a way that, the music never would have sounded like in the actual 20s, but I still sort of bought it in this fantastical way as, like, this is a modern perspective. This is like, you know, the Jazz Age music from 100 years ago through the prism of modern house music. If you want to do that, okay, and I bought it for this one party scene. But, again, that's all the movie wanted to do.
1: Right. That's where they started, and then he came up with material that was, because that was the concept totally yes static in every sense just a little loop of almost meaningless figuration what's the other one right here's another one for him this is a different piece of material and then the whole movie is scored with extrapolations from these supposed themes that were supposedly established in the opening scene the effect of which was just oh really monotonous dance music And now a three hour epic is supposed to find its heart and soul and meaning from reiterations of these things or new, not very distinctive vamps with clapping or stomping. All of this fake party sound of the sound of people being told to pretend to be at a party. It all sounds artificial. Anyway, but let me go back to when you said you accepted it at the beginning party. No, I was already wrong-footed there and that's where the hate comes into this. <laughs> the whole project is Damien Chazelle saying, you might think that the 20s was this you know, straight-laced, lame, boring, fuddy-duddy time, but actually it was a wild and dirty time and I'm gonna bring it to life for you with my amazing filmmaking skills. But of course, since the actual 20s were totally lame, uh, we're gonna make it all modern and that's how you'll understand it. To me, that's already an illegitimate intention. And I saw them saying in so many words in the interview, Justin Hurwitz saying, We knew we weren't gonna use jazz from the 20s because that's a very quaint sound. Like, well then what are you dramatizing here? (laughs) It throws out the window the idea that this is a worthy subject immediately. That's how I felt. Like, if you don't care about the 20s, why are you making a movie about the 20s? And I'm sure Damien Chazelle would say he cares about the 20s and that's why he did the creative act of reimagining it. But it's just such a one-dimensional imagination. And you feel that it's one dimensional when this story tries to play out and this music gives it nowhere to go.
0: I really feel like he didn't dare to actually let his music get in amongst his story. The musical material he had to work with was only suited either in fact or just in his mind to the montage effect. Yeah, bigissimo, bigissimo. Next time try softer, okay? It's gonna but, propel wow, through a series dear. of stuff wow. that wow. loosely hey. relates to each other, hey. that, hey. that hey. I'm gonna hey. say hey. is hey. a cohesive hey. thing just hey. because I'm playing the same hey. music no, 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 through it. No,
1: no, no. Hey, shh. Amigo. The montage music in this movie is like the stock music that TV or YouTube will layer over boring footage to try to trick you into thinking that it's funny. The comedy in this movie is so misconceived that it needs as much of a lift as if it hadn't even been comedy. All of this like, here it goes, here it goes, this is funny, it's... Uh, It's exhausting because it's a lie.
2: And then like
0: the funniest, punchiest thing that he thinks is going to be funny and punchy every time is to stop the montage dead. Ooh, he slammed on the brakes. Ooh, now there's a joke in the hole that the music left. It's like the laziest, uh, again, movie trailer editing technique mm-hmm. of, like, rip the record needle off the record, and then, oh, now we're paying attention to this one moment because the music slammed on the brakes, and that's every cue. That's every cue is a montage that gets the brakes slammed on it, and it wears out its welcome.
1: Everything, everything. How many times do we need to see a push in on a trumpet? Like, there's ten of them in this movie
0: how many times do we need to see these blurry whip pan around to different people talking to each other
1: right and you know what movie had a lot of those whip pans in it boogie nights and then like he does every scene from boogie <laughs> nights it just feels embarrassing i was embarrassed in so many different ways it all actually made me think of this thing A guy I know who was a composer and had taken some lessons with a serious jazz musician, he told me about a comment the guy had made that had really rankled him. And it stuck with me because I felt like, oh, that would be cutting because it sounds accurate. The jazz guy had said, well, I see in your pieces you've been playing at jazz, but maybe we should work on actually playing jazz. (laughs) And that's about the whole movie and the whole score to me. Mm It was all an embarrassing simulacrum Mm -hmm. of the, the most embarrassing subject to pick to be an embarrassing simulacrum of, which is people letting it all hang out and craziness and wild life. The music sounded like a bunch of studio musicians in front of whom Justin Hurwitz had put some pages that said wild at the top and then had some written out solos that are very stiff and you know, like have parallel fifths and stuff in them, don't sound good. It just sounds like this very mechanical attempt to create a wild effect, and. You know, I I get uncomfortable watching actors where I feel that I can see the real person and their feelings about how they really want to do a good job acting. Like that, Ooh, I, I can't stand seeing that. And the whole movie looked like someone who really wanted to do a good job making a movie and someone who wanted to do a good job making a score. Like the orgy at the beginning, he stages all of these naked people as though he's staging some kind of tableau of a painting of you know thousands of bodies and decadence but then he doesn't treat it like a painting he pushes the camera all through it like you'd push it through a realistic party and so the camera just keeps seeing one person after another who looks like they were told like choreograph do this with your arm and act like you're really having an amazingly dirty time and it just looks like someone's school show yeah the music had no Feeling for what parties, dirtiness, earthiness sounds like. At the opening party, this character comes out and she's sort of doing a Marlena Dietrich thing, even though the character ends up being, it's supposed to be uh, Anime Wong, but she sings this dirty song. Can I say these lyrics on our show? Our show can handle this, right? I
0: mean, it's a real old-time dirty song that she sings in a new-time dirty way.
1: Yes, that's exactly what I want to say. It's one of these songs, there were lots of these songs in the 20s and 30s about obvious sexual innuendos that are so obvious. That's the whole point of the song. Here's the 30s recording of this guy saying that he likes to pet his girl's cat.
2: pet I like to pet, and every evening we get set. I
1: stroke it every
2: chance I get it. It's my girl's pussy,
1: and, and it's just a cheery little song, and, and that's the point. Winter, that's why it's dirty. It's naughty because it's a cheerful ground. little song. And here's Justin Hurwitz getting his hands on it, and uh, like every single effect from the book of hackneyed Broadway effects.
2: There's one pet I like to pet. Every evening.
1: So and also, Hackney Broadway effects about an Asian singer are layered on here so that I not a single thing about this is sexy girls. or effective. Plays it's all quote unquote sexy. It's playing at being sexy. And yeah, He's taken
0: his tongue all the way out of his cheek, and he thinks that that's tongue in cheek. But
1: I don't it's being it's self-impressed by all the little tricks you know, none of which are having any value for the audience. And it uh, it angers me.
2: And while often she goes out at night she's always back before the light no matter I want to ask John the
1: in the sequence where light, they play a very obvious a slight thing. alteration of Tristan and Isolde by Wagner mm-hmm. why don't they just play the real thing?
0: That's a great question because they just played the real night on Ball Mountain a minute ago.
1: That's right. he seems to get out of writing his own version is one, he gets to have it start with one of the not very distinctive themes that he established earlier in the movie I think that's
0: the answer is that he wanted to do an old timey film scorey version of his theme and then once it had started with original material it was a bridge too far even for him to then just (laughs) write it into the real Wagner or Tchaikovsky
1: well, he—I mean—he mostly crosses that bridge. He's—he's he's at least three quarters of the way across that bridge. <laughs> All right. Yeah. And then John, in the scene when he writes a very close approximation of Ravel's Bolero, why didn't he just use? Oh, uh, why
0: did he do that? Yeah, good point. Why didn't he should have just used Bolero there? I'm not sure. Just so that he could do Bolero like with his band. It's a jazz band version of Bolero, but it's the same snare, it's the same effect.
1: I think the answer is, yes, just so he could do it. But his is not as good. Of
0: course it's not as good. And guess what? It's a montage, 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 and then, ka-pam, it stops. Oh, yeah, it stopped. And something super gross happens.
1: <laughs> Take that. <Yeah. laughs> she vomits all over everyone like Monty Python, as though we're in the mood to be amused by that. I don't think anyone was amused by that. Was anyone amused by that? I don't think anyone was amused
0: by that. Let's stop. Let's stop. Let's go on. I'm pleased to say that I liked the three movies we have yet to talk about more than these two movies so far.
1: Yes, the, uh, the pummelings portion of our selection is now over and we can proceed to the movies.
0: Good. Let's do that.
1: Uh, first up we have
0: Well there's next up there's a little bit of pummeling but it's <laughs> it's in different forms and
1: <laughs> it's it's a considered and smaller scale pummeling.
0: It's an art house pummeling. Here it comes the Banshees of Inish Aaron.
1: The Banshees of Inish Aran was produced by Graham Broadbent, Pete Chernin, and Martin McDonough, and it was written and directed by Martin McDonough.
0: On a picturesque and remote Irish island, Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleason play longtime drinking buddies who have a sudden and peculiar falling out with some disturbing and unforeseen consequences.
1: Music by Carter Burrell.
0: Hey Andy um you remember how I was talking about how you could uh you could write certain kinds of music just by just by pressing one finger mm-hmm. on the keyboard mm-hmm. mm. yeah. um
1: look after uh two rounds of being pretty heavily on my negative side yeah. I will lead here by saying I liked this movie
0: I like this movie too I think it's really good and I also liked this music
1: and so did I good I'll say I had a slightly different experience the first time I watched it and the second time I returned to watch most of it again. The first time, because of the nature of the screenplay of the movie, you don't know where it's heading. It's designed to be surprising and unpredictable. And since I didn't know where it was heading, I didn't really know what I thought of the music other than that it was competent and filling a role that needed to be filled in such a movie. I kind of developed an opinion of it that it was a good assistant to the director kind of score, bringing the movie its coffee and just doing what needed to be done. And then by the end, I realized that I had really gotten a lot out of that movie and that the movie had made a very strange sale to me i mean it's a very peculiar drama in retrospect i thought the music was essential in making it comprehensible and then when i went back the second time to kind of take it in with the foreknowledge of where it was going i thought yes this music is very intelligently designed to make this fragile construction seem necessary and solid and meaningful and so i'm quite impressed with it now I had
0: almost exactly the same experience. <laughs> you know, we talked about another collaboration between director Martin McDonough and composer Carter Burwell in our first Oscar episode, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, that I think both of us didn't like as much as this movie, even though we admire Carter Burwell for his Efficient, even keeled steady music that feels like it is situating you telling you that here is a story for you makes you feel like you are in good dramatic hands (laughs) i don't think we thought the dramatic hands were quite as i'm going to stop talking about hands i think that the drama wasn't as successful in that case as it is here and similarly this is an appreciation that i came to more on my second watching the music being reserved uncomplicated and a little bit mysterious a little bit understated felt very good and right and productive i agree
1: yes he often goes to these lean lined kind of line drawing Mm. textures for his scores and i thought that with this lush backgrounds of this green irish island there was this sense that the music was etching out something a little a little more artificial, a little more abstract than that. And that was really important for this movie, where what seems like it might be kind of a naturalistic drama, turns out not to be. Turns out to be pitched at kind of an allegorical kind of... Fable, right? Yeah, fable kind of level. That sense of these lines through the space of the movie, just from the beginning, as soon as the music starts... Even though as I was watching it the first time, I thought, oh, that's that's a little too simple. That's a little too easy. No, it turned out to be absolutely necessary for that to be there all along. Yeah,
0: I agree. My first watch, my impression of the score was roughly, well, yes, it's very nice. It's some nice Carter Burrell stuff. There's not much of it. It's spare. You know, most of the time it's there. It's... Just doing little transitionary moments between scenes. It certainly is never going to score the dialogue. It's not going to score the emotional moves of the story. I suppose my first takeaway was this is, you know, good, certainly, but limited by design. And I like the movie, so that's good. And I think you're right. On second viewing, I did come to appreciate more how keenly he felt that this was. A fable, something fairy tale like, something that didn't want to have its inner workings, its emotional arcs exactly transcribed and lifted up because they're allegorical, because they're going to mean different things to different people. They should be left to do that. And instead, it felt like his music was the frame, was the proscenium for this little fairy tale puppet show or like you know the second time I watched it I felt like oh yes this little transition piece that takes us from one conversation to the next it's like it's like turning the pages of the big fairy tale book (laughs) that this is in the cue is and now we turn the page like at the beginning of a Disney movie the big dramatic page turn And then, okay, we're on the next page. Now we're gonna read the page on our own. I think I'm
2: dull. No, cause you're not dull, you're nice. That's what I thought. Think
0: about it, okay. And then this next uh-huh. thing happens. The finger comes back. I gotta stop saying finger. And the page gets turned again. <laughs> the music was always reminding me, yes, we're reading a book, we're reading a story. And that framing, that grounding was really important to me when I thought about it more deeply. And that was something that they decided together, director and composer, in fact, Burl's initial reaction to reading the script was to imagine, well, he's gonna want me to do some Irishy music for this, the same way that I did some, you know, American South type music for three billboards, and the director said, No, let's leave the Irish out of the music, let's focus on this fairy tale frame.
1: Martin McDonough, who's so many of his plays take place in Ireland about Irish themes and is, you know, very much an Irish writer in so many ways and this is so an Irish a movie, he said, I hate that diddly-dee music. <laughs> (laughs)
0: Right. And I think it was a really good decision because there's music that's in the movie that the characters play. In fact, there is fiddle music that is really being played by Brendan Gleeson. And in fact, that Brendan Gleeson composed, he himself is a real Irish fiddler. And I read in an interview, Brendan Gleeson proposed to Carter Burrell that they do a contest between the two of them to see who should get to write the fiddle piece that's in the movie. And as soon as Carter Burl heard the proposition of a contest, he never entered the contest. He just let Brendan Gleason do it because it seemed like it was important to him and he didn't want to get in the way of that. But I think it was the right decision all around.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Because the music that he plays is plausibly the music of that character. Right. It doesn't feel like the music he's playing is some insertion from the storytellers.
0: Yeah, exactly, it would not have benefited this movie to have the score be working out the meaning of the music that he plays on screen.
1: Yeah, I think it has a wonderful effect for the drama part of what's going on is that this character is saying he has to prioritize in his life his making his art that's what actually matters to him and the ambivalence of the eye of the dramatist on all of this is conveyed through the fact that his music is not given any magical access right it's not part of some grand scheme that shows that it had to exist or it's the wrong thing or whatever it's just some music it's the music that that guy wants to write and so we can look at him with whatever eye we want to bring to him and that the music is not you know leading the witness
0: So why is it, Andy, that I am a fan of the restraint and the understatedness of the music here, and I had such a problem with it in All Quiet?
1: Um, I don't know, but I'll say why I am. That's good enough. (laughs) No, John, you're your own person, and your answer might be different, but my answer is... Well,
0: I'll think of my answer after I hear your answer.
1: Oh, classic. Classic. I think the answer, we've already sort of said it, it's because the music here is asserting something that only the music is asserting. Hmm. It's not just polishing the images or flailing against them to destroy them. It's another voice in the movie, very distinctly. That voice is speaking, not always explicitly melodically, but with melody and harmony and rhythm and instrumentation and all of the tools of music again, in a very spare way, but using all of the tools at its disposal to put something across. That, again, to me was the compass that led you back to center. After every scene, it says, you have to go back this way to see the rest of the movie. Mm -hmm. And the first time I was watching it, at the end of every scene, I thought, oh, here comes that music again, which apparently wasn't aware of the exact feeling in the scene I was just watching. Oh, it's not quite right. That's not quite right. But actually. It knew more than I did. It knew what had to happen, and it kept taking me back to where I needed to be to understand the whole landscape around me.
0: Bertolt's music is always telling you what has to happen. He has this incredible ability to write music that is just so. That conveys the sense of things being just so. When that is properly deployed, it's a wonderful asset for a movie. And I like how you said that, yes, he actually uses all of the dimensions of music, you no know, melody, rhythm, timbre, and composes with them, you know, with an intentionally simple talent. But he composes with them like he wants at one point to create the effect of a low ominous drone. And he writes it, he writes notes for it and he writes it on a specific instrument and it feels like it's a composed statement rather than just an expansive mush.
1: of saying what is or isn't composing and what is or isn't instrumentation. I think in All Quiet, lots of things were written out. To me, the difference here was that it was showing up to do something. And it's that very fact that it was doing work that made me unsure until I understood what the work was. It knew things I didn't know at first. And that's, uh, Mm -hmm. in All Quiet, the music can't know anything you don't know because there's nothing to be known. Hmm. Yeah. Other than that the music is about to blare at you, you know. Boo is not new information. (laughs) Like in this first cue that you hear, I mean, the very first thing you hear is some borrowed choral music, but the first score cue you hear, Colin Farrell is walking along the island. It's idyllic and beautiful. And you hear this strolling music that is one of the, I think three themes in the score. Wouldn't you say there's three themes in the score?
0: All right, yeah, that sounds right.
1: I thought of this as kind of the everyday life theme. This is the music that keeps coming back for just the ordinary workings of things, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. whatever that is. It's just this simple open fifth, and then mm, everything but the bass moves up a half step, and it's saying that in the everyday life of these people and this island, something doesn't entirely lie flat. Mm -hmm. When I first heard it, I thought, I know what that looks like on the keyboard. It's just kind of a simple move. I'm not sure he's really felt his way into the story. That seems a little pat. That seems a little like a standard Carter Burwell thing to do, but fine. But now that I know the movie well, it really is just right. It actually is just the right amount so that, here at the beginning of the drama, it feels like, well, that's some mystery, that's some kind of spooky thing that's in movies, I guess we'll wait and find out what it is, we don't know what it is yet. And then later when we find out what it is, and it is gothic, it's, you know, intense, then uh, as I saw Carter Burwell say in some interviews, it starts to take on an almost ironic tone that the mystery here is so gentle. So that has to be calculated from both sides. It has to be calculated in relation to a lot of different things in the movie. And it really is so well calculated that when you watch the movie the second time, the third time, you feel like it knows where we're going. It knows where we are. It's just right. And I'm impressed by that.
0: Yeah, I'm impressed with that too. He establishes this simple selection of material and he works with it in simple ways and builds it out slowly and adds elements into it. You know, the third or fourth time we come back to this material, now there's something else there. Now there's a little bit of a string bed. Or you can tweak the rhythmic pattern that he sets up. Like on my second watch, I was really caught by, you know, when you first hear this piece of material, it starts on the one chord, the home chord and then there's this unexpected harmonic shift, and then it goes back and forth, and then a few cues later, the pattern starts on that unexpected harmony. That's the entry point, and it gives this little quizzical, you know, cock of the head as you're going along. It makes you feel like you're at a different point of the same through line, and I think the economy with which he lays this stuff out and works around with it is also really beneficial to the movie that feels like it's part of the movie's character as well, that sense of being economical with simple materials.
1: Mm -hmm. And with a, not just a simple instrumentation, but an instrumentation signifying simplicity. Right. Actually, a deceptively simple instrumentation that has a lot of subtleties in it. But he chooses these instruments that are, as he said, reminded him of classroom music. He actually said he was thinking of Karl Orff's Schulwerk, which is the guy who wrote Carmina Burana, also wrote these guidebooks for what elementary music education should be and it involved a lot of playing simple pieces on various mallet instruments xylophones and glockenspiels and things so he's picked what to him felt like children's instruments a little childhood fairy tale orchestra of marimba and glockenspiel and a lot of celeste and harp and also under it in some sequences these strange gong sounds that are hard to identify Indonesian Gamelan Orchestra. They are tuned gongs. This is a you know Balinese, Javanese musical form that has a very distinctive sound. And the story he tells is that McDonough sent him some tracks that he'd been listening to and thinking of using in the movie, or was using as temp music. They included a piece of Indonesian Gamelan music. Unfortunately, I don't know exactly what piece it is or we'd play it here. I can't find a place where they name the exact track and it's no longer in the movie. But for a long time it was going to be in the movie, I think for a montage near the end that tries to tie everything together. And Carter Burwell thought, I need to prepare this, I need to prepare the audience's ears for this to be a valid wrapping up of this movie, So he started seeding the sounds of the Gamelan into his score. And then after he'd written the score, they took it out. And he actually composed his own piece to cover that same spot. But now the implication of a Gamelan to come is threaded through everything. And I think it has a wonderful effect of strangeness. Yeah, I
0: think they took it out because they thought that what he had written already with that influence was sufficient and got the job done without having to go to that other piece of music. He said that part of the strangeness that he liked from using these low Indonesian gongs is that they have a different sort of mathematical arrangement of their overtones and their harmonics. They don't line up with Western music comfortably. He says that they're actually in that simple music at the beginning, low down in the mix and low in a low register, just at the edge of what you can perceive. but giving this underlying sense of strangeness or conflict that there are these you know, overtones that don't line up with the rest of the notes that are played on top of it. I'm honestly not sure if I heard that exactly, but you definitely do hear those bells come to more and more prominence as the various disturbing things start to happen.
1: well what I knew I was hearing although I wasn't sure I knew exactly how it was being done was an effect that reminded me of when a toy piano was in a score and I don't think there's any toy pianos in this score but that similarly has a strange set of overtones and has this quality of the innocence of childhood but also the kind of uncanniness of childhood is often what you get out of that and that I think really helps this drama where people do strange and violent things because they are having a strange and violent interpersonal tension relationship. To have it resonate with both the simplest things we know about human relations, as one character says at one point, what are you 12? Like the things they're expressing to each other are very childlike basic things. And yet we also have in the distance the Irish Civil War and the implication that a lot of human discord, a lot of adult problems stem from these same things. This sense that in that childlike set of sounds is some deep unknowable mystery. That to me was the sale that the movie made, that it was showing me all this strangeness as saying, you recognize this though, don't you? You kind of know where in humanity this is coming from. And I did, and this seemed like a really smart sound for that. So then there's this second theme which really extends right out of that. And I think this is my favorite bit of material in this movie, this theme that changes meter. Yeah. Which is the most Gamelin like. I kind of imagine that the piece that was removed from the temp score must have resembled this somewhat, maybe.
0: Yeah, it's this kind of wandering up and down figure that gets repeated and different instruments join in. I think when we first hear it, it's just the bare figure, you know, getting doubled again and again with a few different instruments. But eventually, This is the sort of economical, but steady building out of material I was talking about. He does new things to it. Uh, Eventually strings and flutes get added into it. And I think that this material winds up becoming the most hauntingly beautiful musical moment in the film. I think this is just gorgeous when character takes a boat. And the way that the flute comes in here, playing long notes against that up and down pattern, kind of feels like the top of this structure that's been building up. Something of a revelation, and is just achingly lovely.
1: Theme of the mysterious force that comes between people or the spiritual problem that is taunting or troubling all of the characters and the strange ways that it works and the changing of the meter and the rising and falling of it made it feel like it was this organic breathing, some kind of a living force. I really liked how in a score that's already doing, like I said, a familiar kind of mysterious half-step move in that other theme, Here's a theme that actually embodies the mystery and has a natural or mathematical quality to what it's doing that goes beyond just a movie tune that kind of has a spooky note in it. You can look right at it and not know why it's undulating or what it is. The more times I hear it, the more I think, oh, yeah, that's something really special. And it is so simple. And then he does it in parallel fifths. Mm which is a strange, archaic kind of sound. I actually thought, oh, is this supposed to sound like Gregorian chant? This whole theme sounds a little like Gregorian chant when you first hear it in the church. But it's nothing so specific as that. It's just something truly mystical you know, I've heard interviews with Martin McDonough, he says he likes to sort of improvise in his writing. He comes up with characters, he comes up with situations, but he doesn't know exactly how things are going to spin out. And he said he was sitting and writing this, and then one of the characters sort of said something as he was working out the scene, and he thought, ooh, what if I follow that thread? And all of the things were not spoiling, in the second half of the movie kind of fell out from there, and he hadn't planned it in advance. It was kind of this dreamlike emergence of something, and then, oh, all its consequences have to fall out. That can have a beautiful power in drama when you're having the dream. But if you're not having that dream, it can look haphazard or like it's just a series of effects. And yeah, that mystical element in the score gave it a certain dreamlike validity for me. Well said. The third theme is this thing in three... I thought this is the explicitly fairy tale theme. Isn't that how it's structured? Yeah, it has a lot of celeste in it. Right. You hear it in a scene that's sort of staged, very fairy, fairy tale, where one of the characters is at the lake, and the mysterious old woman of the island is across the lake, and it feels like you're seeing a character from a fairy tale in a fairy tale situation. And I think the most moving thing in the score for me is that at the end, at the climax, when a, uh, a great destructive act is committed. This fairy tale theme, which has mostly associated with the beauties of the island and the kind of mythological atmosphere, it rises up to score this climactic destruction. And it's as if to say the workings out of this descent into destruction have been unpredictable. But the end point, the fact that it was headed this way was preordained, was mythical. This is just the way it goes. And it felt like the musical camera pulling back a little bit from that storybook and saying, this is the story we've been telling. And that really landed for me in a way that I didn't see coming. I just didn't know that that was going to be the payoff of the whole thing. I didn't really understand that I'd been watching A Fable until that point when it came in and said, you knew this, didn't you? Oh, I guess I did know. Hmm.
0: Yeah, that's a deceptively simple achievement to write music that makes you feel like, oh yes, I knew this the whole time. And again, I think that's what he's really good at. And it was used to really good effect here. So, so that was a better time talking about that.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I knew it would be.
0: Okay. Well, things are looking up. Where do we go from here?
1: Uh, everywhere, John. Wow. When? Well, now. Okay.
0: Everything Everywhere All at Once was produced by Anthony and Joe Russo, Mike Larocca, Daniel Kwan, Daniel Shiner, Jonathan Wong, and Peter Tamley. And it was written and directed by Daniels, the two-man team of Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert.
1: It stars Michelle Yeoh, Ki Hui Kwan, and Stephanie Hsu as Evelyn Waymond and Joy Wong, a Chinese-American family who run a laundromat. While being audited by an IRS agent played by Jamie Lee Curtis, Evelyn finds herself suddenly thrust into a zany and surreal multiverse-hopping cosmic battle of good and evil, in which she has to contemplate the infinite possible versions of herself.
0: Music by the band Sun Lux, which consists of Ryan Lott, Rafiq Bhatia, and Ian Cheng. So, uh, so, Andy, you, uh, you remember when I was talking about how you could write certain kinds of music just by uh, just by pressing one toe on the keyboard?
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, no, they use all their toes. Yeah,
0: that's right. That's right. And I want to say first and foremost that, you know, like Michelle Williams has gotten some hype for all you know, the piano playing that she learned to do for the next movie we're going to talk about. She's got nothing on the toe piano playing that happens in this movie, which is dead on accurate. Jamie Lee Curtis's feet, or whatever purport to be Jamie Lee Curtis's feet, play the real Claire de Lune by Debussy in the real key of D-flat major, and the real keys get depressed on the piano, and it is very, very impressive.
1: I thought those were some kind of you know costume gloves what did you think you think someone actually did that with their feet
0: my best guess is that those are real feet and that it is some sort of like player piano rigged up keyboard where the keys can depress themselves that's my best guess i don't know i don't know how they did it but i like that's the level of detail that i feel like they committed to in this movie
1: uh yeah for people who haven't seen the movie is this <laughs> is this followable what are we talking about
0: I mean I just said there's feet playing Claire lune is that a spoiler
1: I honestly don't know <laughs> what even counts as a spoiler for this movie yeah
0: it's hard to know what counts as anything about this movie because it is so truly and really everything and everywhere and all at once
1: you know I went in knowing that it was gonna be everything everywhere and that, <laughs> it's actually a set of like seven things, I didn't realize that it was going to be consistent about the alternate universes to which it kept returning and sort of built up an understanding of them over the course of the movie. Okay,
0: okay. Andy, I have been on tenterhooks waiting to find out what you thought about this movie. And now you're going to tell me. Come on, out with it.
1: I'll tell you, but first, tell me more about these tenterhooks. Why are you on tenterhooks about this one?
0: Because I really loved this movie, and uh, if you found some cranky angle to take on it, then I'm going to be disappointed in that.
1: Just looking up tenter hooks now.
0: Yeah, most people say tender hooks, which is one of those phenomena where it's like a malapropism, but it becomes the thing in the language just from usage. But the actual word is tenter hooks. So there.
1: I've never heard tender hooks. I knew it was tenter hooks, but I didn't know what it was. A tenter is a, uh, a wooden frame used for drying woolen cloth. Yeah, that sounds about right. Just tell me, Andy. (laughs) Yeah, I like the movie. I like the movie. Uh, I don't know if I loved it enough to satisfy someone who loved it and needs everyone else to love it, but I liked it. Is that going to work for us? Yeah.
0: All right, fine. I can make that work. I can make that work for us specifically because you teased to me off the air a while ago that you really did love one of the movies in this set of movies. I I didn't use
1: the word love. I just By process
0: of elimination, I'm also pleased about what that means about what's coming up.
1: Okay. All right, good. I aim to please. I mean, I don't aim to please, so. You really don't. I'm really glad that that it's pleasing you anyway. I didn't come up with cranky takes on the movies I've had cranky takes on. They just descended upon me. Yeah. I enjoyed this movie a great deal. Good, that's good enough. The crankiest I can get about it is that it felt kind of long by the end. And would you agree, even as a lover of the movie, that it runs a little long?
0: No, I was totally in it the whole time.
1: All right, I was, I will say, very, very in it for the first 15 minutes before anything crazy happened, I thought, this is wonderful just the whole tone and depiction of this everyday world of the woman who runs the laundromat. I thought it was just beautiful and joyous and everyone seemed to be fully invested in it. And I thought I could watch a movie about this laundromat.
0: And so you did.
1: Well, I did, but I watched a kaleidoscopic fantasy movie. And I'm just saying that it started out on the best possible footing for me. And then the first, I don't know, hour of all the craziness, I thought, this is wonderful. I'm completely, completely with this. And then it just started to feel like I was waiting for them to get to the next thing. It was maybe too many fight scenes for me to really feel 100% like this is my new favorite movie. But I had a very good experience with the movie. No question.
0: All right. Okay. I'll take it. I enjoyed all of the fight scenes. And we've got to talk about the music in this movie. Maybe I'll start by saying each and every one of the fight scenes was scored with like a completely different idea of what music for a fight scene should be. And I thought that was amazing and impressive. I feel like in some perverse way, this is like the other side of the coin of what we were talking about for the Banshees of Innis because you know, I talked to people about this movie and, you know, and I talked to people, oh, I'm going to have to talk about this score on the podcast and everybody I talked to said, oh yeah, I love that movie, but what was the what was the music? Mm-hmm.
1: I heard that too. Was yeah. there
0: any kind of special thing happening in the music? And before I went back and really paid attention and tried to chart what was going on, I didn't really have an answer. I just felt like, oh yeah, yeah I'm, I'm going to have to figure out what was going on with the music when it just felt obvious and integral to the movie that I had enjoyed so much without me having really had to give much thought to it. But then, on closer consideration, watching it a second and a third time and paying attention to every move that the music was making, just like in Banshees of Nishiran, I felt like a world was opening up to me of, oh, this is so crucial to this movie's sale. where Carter Burwell's music is spare and just so and focusing on just the one perspective that is important this score in its maximalist way is making it possible to have all of these different perspectives coalesce and all be you know both real and unreal and fantastical and imagined and silly and heartfelt <laughs> I thought it was kind of an astonishing achievement, to be honest.
1: I'm probably with you in being astonished by it. I knew while I was watching the movie that the music was so deeply tied to the directorial intent of the whole movie. Each scene, each second of each scene, each cut, every single thing in the movie had directors and composers and editors all clearly with their heads together, coming up with the best stuff they could to finesse absolutely everything, to make it this, yeah, unique movie that no other movie has quite this kind of content or tone or style or rhythm. All of this stuff is just creative juice flowing through every single bit of it. And I also knew that it was for that reason Not really a separable thing that I was going to be able to think about very easily as music.
0: Oh, it's very difficult to think about as music. I would absolutely agree with you. One of my notes here that I've written down is, it's so hard to take notes about this.
1: Because it just is the movie. Yeah. It's like the sound of editing and directing done with... Musical instruments, with samples, with a computer, with all of these tools, and with great creativity. You said earlier, you said about uh, All Quiet when they had a string riser. You said that's in there because it's just one of the things you can do, and that's why they put it in there. Yeah. This movie is all about all the things you can do, and it is just overflowing with all the things you can do. There's string risers, but there's every other thing that's in a tool set, and then they add it to their toolbox, and it's just overflowing with ideas and experiments and effects, and because there's so much energy behind it, I embrace all of that. And it also still is kind of like, well, that's just a toolkit being used. I don't have anything to say about this as a composition. Is there a composition or is there just a lot of really good work being done from beginning to end? Is it a work or is it just a lot of work that was done?
0: (laughs) Uh, Well, I sort of put this score in the same category as the kind of thing that I was talking about earlier with Dunkirk and Dune where yeah, it is just a very advanced and carefully planned out toolkit, flexing its muscles. Absolutely, you're right. It sounds like everything that I've heard before in a way that is like nothing I've heard before. And that was the whole brief of the whole movie, to mix up everything that you've seen in other movies as a metaphor for the vastness of possible perspectives on life. So I just thought it was dead on right in doing that. I think it very intentionally aspires to sound like other things. Like I said, every single fight sounds like a fight in a different movie. And I'm certain that that was the intent. The first real fight where Kihui hui Kwan uh, fights the security guards with his fanny pack. <laughs> This sounds like a sort of modern, manic, electronica, kung fu kind of score.
1: I think it's supposed to sound like a Hong Kong action movie or something.
0: Exactly, and it sounds that way for a reason. Because it's landing the joke that, whoa, all of a sudden this movie is this movie. We're doing a one of these movies now. And it commits to that wholeheartedly. or other fights that sound like a fight from The Matrix. I mean, this movie, I think very knowingly is cribbing a lot of things from The Matrix, and that's cool, and the music is no exception.
1: I feel like the word cribbing is wrong for the spirit of this movie. You're right. I won't spoil other things that are in there, but there are just other movies in there blatantly. Yes,
0: intentionally.
1: The spirit of doing that is something other than parody or stealing or borrowing. It's part of the cultural statement of the whole thing.
0: Yes. So there are other fights that sound like a video game. There are fights that sound like a different era of Hong Kong martial arts film, you know, with more traditional sounding drums and flutes. There's fights that are scored with like really serious quote unquote, real action movie music. There are fights that are scored with big epic, ambient, synthy, sincere statements of emotion. And what's more, I sort of don't think that this could have been done by just one person. It's done by this band that I had no awareness of, sorry but obviously the directors of the movie were fans of these three guys, and I feel like you can hear the multiple cooks at work here that were just the right number of cooks. At the same time as the music has all these disparate ideas and elements and styles in it, it is so nimble and agile, and it is able to sort of flex and flow from one thing to the next. You know, you'll hear a sweet string line. And then the sort of background ambience will gradually and organically, coherently augment into an action set piece. really did remind me of the achievement of something like dunkirk where there were many extra musical elements that were calibrated within an inch of their lives to augment and to resonate with and to make real every single jump and jive of this fantastically weird movie as it went in every direction
1: at once and part of the charm of the movie, I thought, was that the acting, the performances, you know, when they're called on to be silly and over the top, they go over the top. But a lot of the time, they're just being these very ordinary people. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of the point of the movie that it's these normal people being propelled through all of these fantastic possibilities and flights of fancy by the mechanism of the movie, by the editing, by all of this stuff around them, which includes the music, which feels like little hands that shoot into the action and push on this and push that and push buttons and push the characters around.
2: Waylon. about better keep moving. Now you've definitely got your boy's attention.
0: Yeah, we've talked about music acting like the hydraulics on a roller coaster ride before, and I think that's an apt metaphor here.
2: Stay calm.
0: Like, we need all of the brass rips and whooshes and riser like noises every time somebody, you know, jumps from one reality into another and their bodies become different I versions I'll of themselves.
2: You I'll be back. I promise. No 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 wait. I just...
0: Huh. We need all of those pushes.
1: I saw this as, yes, in the manner of the closely tied to the moment technique of someone like Hans Zimmer. But I also saw it as a counterexample or a corrective in the way that I complain about. Because it was that without being droned. That's true. It was not a roller coaster that just is about making your stomach drop. It wanted to show you things. It wanted to amuse you. In the Zimmer scores, and not just Zimmer, in the All Quiet on the Western Front score that we were just talking about... I feel like the music is trying to manipulate me and hopes that I don't recognize that manipulation as familiar. Hmm. And in this movie, it absolutely wanted you to recognize each and everything that they were doing and take pleasure in that. Enjoy the wide world of things that can be done. And then furthermore, it used so many more of the possibilities of that wide world. It used melodic ideas, harmonic ideas, rhythmic ideas, changes of texture, there wasn't a sense of oh we've got the audience where we want them now so let's just hold them there for the next three and a half minutes because that's what this scene is about never it was always well what if we did this what if we did that you can feel the thinking and feeling minds of the creative team experiencing it along with you trying to make it the most gratifying thing they can and mm-hmm. this is where i feel a little overwhelmed by this score because i don't even know what to call out as an example here here's <laughs> some stuff listen to that. oh that's cool <laughs> But here's some totally different stuff. Oh, listen to that, that's cool.
0: Yeah, and that was the same cue. Yeah, they're willing to play with everything. They're willing to play with music that they came up with. They're willing to play with existing music. I mean, I didn't mention that there are other fights that are scored with songs, with Chinese opera, With pop songs. And then I think they very satisfyingly make the Claire de Lune that we were talking about into this touchstone for the one character and her possible relationship with another character. And I had so much fun with that. Honestly, when I thought about it, I wondered if they picked Clair de Lune as the piece that they were going to use to make that connection. I mean, it shows up in other movies, too. It's, you know, it's an important piece of music to like Ocean's Eleven and stuff. So maybe they were, you know, that's another, you know, piece of culture that they were referencing or something like that. But I wondered if they picked it because it is a piece of music that like you could plausibly put feet on top of a piano and make it look like they are playing. I mean, I'd like to see her try to play the next part of the piece when it gets really fast on those arpeggios, but that would be really hard to do with your feet. But they didn't use that part of the piece.
1: I forgot that it was in Ocean's Eleven. I don't know what else it is in, but I thought it was a reference in the sense that Claire de Lune is an enormously famous piece, famous for being pretty, and could seem like a hackneyed choice of a pretty piano piece because it is so overplayed, and yet... It still is, in fact, very pretty. Right. And that seemed like the spirit of the whole movie, that we recognize this, we know it, and that doesn't mean we need to be sarcastic about it. We can just enjoy...
0: Right. There's nothing sarcastic at all about it. And then you get to enjoy, well, those big low piano notes that are part of that sequence. What if we put, like, a big action movie, BOOM, on one of those? That would be so cool, and it was... I, I thought that sounded so awesome.
1: So that's the first time we hear it. And when I first heard that, I thought, wow, this crazy everything bagel of a score is going like <laughs> beyond. I, I, I don't know where that came from, but I guess that's going to be here. And that's the attitude they're taking. But then uh, the second time you watch the movie, it has a new meaning to you. But they also, in that sequence, they have a little vocal arrangement of it. Right. <laughs> also so great.
0: It all conveys a sense of it is sincere fun that we are having by coming up with the kookiest things we can think of.
1: Yeah. And, you know, the interviews I watched with the guys of Sunlux, they said that. They were excited about the project, but a little overwhelmed by the screenplay that, you know, before they saw the cut of the movie, they thought, this is crazy. How is this going to work? What is this? They said that the first thing the directors asked for from them was this, like, movie musical number that's on TV in the laundromat, and then it's on TV in the alternate universe laundromat, because they needed that for filming. They needed to actually have that on set. And they said that that... You know, didn't start them down the musical path of the movie, but it did start them kind of down the creative path in that it encouraged them to just imagine a completely different version of themselves. Like to bring their talents to something they would never ever do. Writing a Broadway musical wasn't what any of them did, and yet they had to kind of wrap their heads around this challenge. And then that became the composing challenge of the rest of the movie because the directors told them this movie is going to be like channel flipping. It's going to go so fast from one reality to another. And we need instantaneous musical signals that will immediately tell us where we are and situate the audience's sense of everything. And so they had to imitate this, that, yeah. and everything all at once. <laughs> As they say in the interviews, they tried to do their version of everything, of the kung fu action scene, of a love scene, of a standard, you know, thriller movie. And that comes through, this sense of investing each of these sort of joke assignments with a serious effort to find something to say or do that was rewarding within it.
0: They also were called upon to imitate a Randy Newman-style song as though from a Toy Story-like movie. Mm -hmm. And... (laughs) (laughs) And they got actual Randy Newman to sing it. Did you hear that?
1: Yeah, I didn't know about it until I saw the end credits, and then I went back, and there's hardly any of it in the movie, but there's a whole song on the
2: album.
0: Now we're cooking while nobody's looking. It was pretty good.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The guy said he you know, wrote it as a Randy Newman style song and then actual yes. Randy Newman watched the cut of the movie and said, sure, I'll be in this. <laughs> yeah, there's just a sense of joyous embrace of things. That's the message of the movie and it's the spirit of the movie. It did feel a little to me like it was sort of a generational statement, this movie. I don't know if I was reading into it what I wanted to see, but it felt like possibly one of the messages of the movie was that if you feel like the world is so full of information and content and points of view and problems and you know everything that it's meaningless as so many people do well just have fun with all the stuff let's all embrace that there's so much stuff and i did spend some time thinking like is that is that my attitude toward all of this you know the personality i bring to these conversations where i'm like but why can't they say something and stand up and be a person like it was there in my head while I was watching this, like, I don't know if I believe that the answer to a, everything that ails us as a modern society is to, uh... Yeah, what
0: are you going to say is the answer that they propose? Because I don't know if I agree that that's the answer that they propose.
1: Well, so it's not clear, and I'd be interested to hear. What do you think the answer they propose is? <sighs>
0: oh, well, me and my big mouth. What, now I have to... Mm-hmm. <laughs> um... Mm-hmm. Wow, you really judoed me good there.
1: Yeah, with my fanny pack. <laughs> I think there are many
0: messages that you can take away from it, uh, to love with a whole heart your family and the people around you, and to use that as a anchor of meaning, and then to be accepting of yourself and of other people, and uh, in addition to, you know, just be a rock.
1: I felt like a definite thread in the movie was the everything bagel of the modern world tempts people toward nihilism that was definitely being said i agree and then the rebuttal to that was look at all the fun we're having with all of this stuff
0: yeah i think that's a narrow representation of the rebuttal i think the rebuttal is hold on to love and kindness and acceptance you know rather than nihilism doesn't that sound better
1: i'm not trying to make it sound bad (laughs) and i i think those were the same in this movie's voice It seemed to me that they were trying to say that the craziness of a hot dog hands world could be compatible with, could be equated with a wholehearted love. And they tried to depict exactly that, that the craziness and the openness of heart went together and that, yes, there might be infinite possibilities. That's a good thing. Yeah, that sounds good. And the fact that it scored this way and takes this possibility hopping attitude felt like, um, I guess I felt a little at the end like, What does it mean that I won't know how to talk about this on the show? (laughs) Should I give up on wanting movies to be scored with a composition? like what?
0: I thought you didn't want to say what things are compositions and what aren't.
1: Uh, You're right. And that's not even fair. It has themes. It has motifs that follow the characters, follow the themes, and pay off. It's absolutely a composition. The more I listened to it, the more I could hear... Structures inside it. Essentially, there's a more traditional score kind of embedded in all of this stuff that peaks out in certain moments. But still, like taken as a whole, there's just a sense. Yeah, the movie feels like it was made sitting in front of a computer. I agree.
0: Look, I agree. I loved this movie and its score. And I also agree that it is something different. They're doing something different than than most of the scores that we talk about on this show. And I feel like I can appreciate this and the remarkable achievement that it is while I still, yes, do yearn for the stuff that you yearn for. And I feel like I can embrace both of those perspectives as this movie taught me. But I do, I do think I get what you're saying in some senses, that this is different than, say, a John Williams score.
1: Yeah. I guess I'm saying that I feel like I'm buffeted between these possibilities that are offered to me, one of which is Hans Zimmer saying, why don't you kind of trance out into this vast desert of a single thought? And then here they're saying, yes, things change every minute, but they can all be good. And I feel like, yeah, if I, you know, if I have to pick one of these, I'm picking this one for sure. But some part of me feels like the person that I go to music for, that sense of a personal encounter... I think is somewhere in the middle. And yes, maybe that's a very old-fashioned, maybe I'm so backward that what I want is like a movie about the 50s scored by a 90-year-old. <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay, before we get to that, I just wanted to point out one more thing in this movie to you. Mm-hmm. Jamie Lee Curtis's character in this movie is named Deirdre. Did you see what her last name is?
1: Um, I did. I saw it was goofy. I've already forgotten what it was.
0: Her full name is Deirdre Bobirdre.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. I I saw her say that at an interview, where she seriously said that.
0: I'm seriously saying it now, Deirdre Bobirdre. Next up, the (laughs) Fablements.
1: Fableman's was written by Steven Spielberg and Tony Kushner, produced by Christy McCasco krieger Steven Spielberg, and Tony Kushner, and directed by Steven Spielberg.
0: It stars Gabriel Labelle as Sammy Fableman, a lightly fictionalized version of Spielberg himself, in this memoir recounting the filmmaker's developing passion for movies through his childhood, as influenced by his family, played by Michelle Williams, Paul Dano, Judd Hirsch, and the family friend Seth Rogen.
1: Music... John Williams all right the fablemans tell me what did you anticipate feeling about this movie and then how did you feel about the movie
0: I was very ready to believe that it was going to be wonderful and I I thought it was pretty wonderful
1: I was willing to believe that it was wonderful, but I didn't know how it was going to be. I also heard from some people that it was self-indulgent or a minor work or, you know, too dependent on all of us loving Steve and that there was something uncomfortable about that. And I thought I could imagine thinking such a thing. I hope I don't, but we'll see. And then when I watched it, I was just very moved. I felt completely untroubled by whether it was indulgent or Spielberg assuming uh, an interest in him on the part of the audience in some kind of awkward way. I didn't have any of those thoughts. I just thought it was a really beautiful movie about the filmmaker's childhood. It reminded me, honestly, a little bit of uh, Minari that we talked Hmm. about a couple of years ago. Yeah,
0: I hadn't thought of that, but sure. And,
1: you know, no one had heard of that guy. It didn't matter. You cared about his childhood because it was his childhood. Because he cared about his childhood. Exactly right. It was offered in the spirit of, I want to show you my life because, of course I want to, because everyone cares about their own life just as you care about your own life. And it felt generous and not self-involved at all to me.
0: Absolutely. You know, I have friends, I'm sure you do too, and maybe you are one of them that like to proclaim that they have a skepticism about Spielberg's power over them. I've heard people say, oh, he's so manipulative, you know, I don't want to be manipulated by him. I have always felt like that is a kind of too cool for school, protesting too much attitude just because it's boring to acknowledge how good he is at it. I've never felt the need to put up defenses like that against Spielberg's manipulations. But I was thinking back to our conversation about E.T., and I thought you put it really well there that he has a musical sense of what he wants to show you. He wants to put emotions on the screen that wrap you up in them the way that music can to convey things to you in a way different than prosaic reality, in a poetic way that romantic music can. And that if you're not with the music, then you can feel like he's trying to sell you something that you're not buying And so I wonder if his forwarding of John Williams music in his movies contributes to the people saying, oh, he's so manipulative, which is why I sort of feel like I want to say to those people, well, this might be his least manipulative movie ever.
1: (laughs) Well, it's interesting because it absolutely is not a strictly realistic depiction of these events from his childhood no both in how the screenplay has been sculpted by him and by Tony Kushner but also the lighting is still the Janusz Kaminski lighting where everything is a little bit you know glowing and blown out and Mm -hmm. the staging is all familiar camera moves that we know from the Spielberg songbook and which
0: are terrific I mean come on
1: that's right it's lovely Part of the meaning of the movie, and obviously part of the subject, the topic of the movie, is that he is not just reenacting things from his life, but he is converting them into the substance of his movies.
0: Yeah. I said that about how the fame woman's might be less, quote unquote, manipulative because of how little of John Williams' music is in it, certainly compared with his scores for other Spielberg pictures.
1: Yeah, I haven't gone through all of their films to see, but... It seems possible to me that this is the shortest score. My quick measurements today told me that there were about 14 minutes of music in the movie proper and then a seven-minute end credits suite.
0: That sounds right. I mean, that's on the scale of, you know, Rocky and other short scores that we've talked about. For a
1: long movie, this is a a two-and-a-half-hour movie.
0: That's right. Now, there's plenty of other music that John Williams didn't write in it. Well, exactly. Well, exactly.
1: The movie is full of music. The fact that his mother plays the piano is at the center of the movie. And the meaning of all of the scores of the movies that he sees as a child is also at the center of the movie. So this is the music that really, in a sense, is the score of the movie. And then John Williams is there to add an extra perspective the perspective of having transformed this history, like I was saying. Mm,
0: That's, yeah, that's good. Did you come across anything in reading about their work on this movie? Any reason why Spielberg didn't ask for much music from him? I mean, is it because he is in fact now the oldest person ever to be nominated for an Oscar at 91?
1: I have to assume that no has nothing to do with that, because I think John Williams at the age of 91 is currently churning out an enormous amount of music for Indiana Jones and the future of Indiana Jones, (laughs) coming soon to a theater near you. I think he's writing hours and hours like he usually does. I don't think that he has an energy uh, shortage.
0: I mean, could there be something to his workload then that he didn't have a lot of time to give to this? I'm just wondering if there was some outside restraint on how much Williams music Spielberg had to work with here because it feels so constrained to me.
1: I thought it felt correct. I imagine this was an artistic choice that either they mutually agreed or one talked the other into, but it just seemed right to me as I was watching the movie. Oh,
0: I absolutely thought it was right. I mean, I think that the genius of this score is it's spotting. It's so carefully chosen when to let there be Williams music here, because as you said, there's so much other music there. There's music coming from his mother at the piano, Michelle Williams playing there. I saw that she had a piano double listed, but boy, it looked like she was really playing a
1: lot of it. Mm -hmm. I think they special affected her face into the reflection of the piano when someone else's hands are playing. But yeah, she does a very convincing job of whatever she's doing. It's possible that she is playing the Beethoven in
0: that one scene. Yeah, it really looked like she was. And you hear it coming from the other room as source music, source music that becomes scoring. And then you hear it just without a claim that it's coming from the other room, just as though it is the score to things in very powerful ways. And then, yeah, then there's the music that the young Sammy Fableman chooses to track onto his early filmmaking projects, which are drawn from
1: Mm -hmm. our catalog.
0: That's right, scores that we've talked about. There's How the West Was Won. Right, he uses How the West Was Won, interestingly, to score a World War II picture that he makes and not the Western movie that he makes. He uses the Magnificent Seven, and specifically, mostly the bad guy theme from Magnificent Seven for the Western movie that we see him making.
1: Uh-huh. And if you look closely in his bedroom, you see he has the Ben-Hur soundtrack up over his desk as well. And the Spartacus soundtrack.
0: You can see that he has a record of Captain from Castile on his little editing machine for something that he's doing.
1: And that gets used at the in his Ditch Day movie that he makes for high school. Right. When he mysteriously chooses to lionize his own bully, it plays triumphant music from Captain from Castile.
0: And hey, can I take a moment just to shout out our pal James Urbaniak?
1: I was going to say, this show was one degree... We are one degree away from Sammy Fableman.
0: And Steven Spielberg, the principal at his high school in Santa Clara. day 1964. Was, I think we can now reveal, the, the special guest voice cameo at the beginning of our second Oscar episode. So,
1: Strangely enough, yes. Lights, camera, action. This podcast shares cast with a Steven Spielberg movie, finally.
0: Congratulations to everybody involved. Anyway, you know, then there's a bunch of period pop songs. There's a motley and lively collection of music running throughout this movie. But the original music, the music that is the heart of what is meaningful to Spielberg is deployed so carefully... It sort of felt to me like the original score here was the shark in Jaws. (laughs) That's sort of why I was wondering whether there was some outside limitation on how much of it he could use Uh, as there was on the shark in Jaws because the mechanical Bruce the shark didn't work. And so you know they came up with reasons to not show you the shark and still make you scared of him. Like Jaws, I felt like the score is the crux of the movie. It's what it is about. It's the creative life force that he took from his mother and put into his filmmaking. That's what the real nugget of the movie is. He felt like he had to parcel that out and make you think about it without showing it to you. He had to make its absence meaningful the whole time. It's like the sun, you couldn't look at it for too long. The love? The love, the artistic ambition, the commitment to creativity.
1: I guess that's right in the sense that in normal life, people don't go deep into the heart of interpersonal emotions too often because it's like too strong. And that's, that's part of the magic of the movies that these things can sing out. And as I was watching the first, what is it? Half an hour before we get a real cue, other than there's 40 seconds of some sort of shimmering strings at the moment when his mother gives him a camera. Sammy,
2: we're going to use daddy's camera to film it.
0: Yeah, this is the only cue in the whole sequence of him as a young boy thinking about what a movie is and how to make it and and what it means for him to have seen it. No music for that. There's only music for his mother gifting the camera to him. And then nothing from Williams for a good long time. The only thing that is identifiable really as a piece of music that he writes for the first hour of this movie is for the, you know, important scene when Michelle Williams dances in the headlights at the campfire. So
1: what I was saying is prior to that, the first nearly 40 minutes of the movie, the more I was in tune with that feeling that it was really someone saying to me, this happened to me and can you imagine that was formative for me. I started to wonder how is John Williams and his emotional palette and all of the associations that come with that kind of music, how is that going to fit into this? How are these memories going to meet that kind of music? If there's a sweep to this, if it becomes a fantasy, if it becomes a movie in that way, will it feel like, you know, honey is being dripped over it and kind of clogging up its pores? So the extreme delicacy of the spotting for 40 minutes seemed right to me, that there was just a little bit there. Even in that little bit, I thought, oh, that's, that's a lot of magic for someone's real life. But I think that moment, in terms of how important it is to this artist, of whom this is a portrait as a young man, that deserved it for 40 seconds very delicately, sure. And then, all right, now these are just things that happened with his parents. The music was waiting for a moment that merited this transformation into the dream of cinema. Even though the whole thing is a kind of a transformation, it seemed almost necessary to me that it wait and wait and wait and be very cautious about reaching into someone else's home movies and, you know, smearing their hand all over it. John Williams doesn't want to do that to his friend Steven Spielberg. So I thought throughout the movie, the restraint showed that the music understood what it was dealing with. It wasn't just trying to make drama out of any old thing. It was trying to respect this subtle thing, which is, you know not being so nostalgic that you distort the past, but letting the past kind of start to glow because it's that significant.
0: Yeah, that's a good way of putting that. He didn't want to just make drama out of any old thing. And you can hear and you can feel many any old things pass by in this movie and not get the scoring that they might get in any other movie. You know, they pile into a car and go driving after a tornado. That might get an action cue or something. And then she says something very wistful and important about it afterwards. Everything
2: happens for a reason. Say it with me. Everything happens for a reason.
0: And then the thing that's, you know, what the movie is about, his early experiments with filmmaking don't get original music. He doesn't want to let the idea of what a score means and how it follows the arc of real emotion, he doesn't want to let that into the movies that he's made until he has processed some things emotionally. And even then, it's very tentative. I think the first time that there's any suggestion of original Williams score music that is associated with film footage that Sammy Fabelman shot, is when they move into their house in Northern California and we see footage as though on his eight millimeter camera. And the piano is just now stepping tentatively, dipping its toe into the very notion of letting John Williams have anything to do with footage that the character has shot.
1: But that cue ends up being a cue about divorce. Yes,
0: it does, because it bridges from his home movie of moving into their house and bridges through this very emotional, formative moment for their family. And then it is bookended with him considering his camera again.
1: I took that scene to be, I mean, one of the strongest shots in this movie. I feel almost like it's a spoiler to name it, but... I'm going to name it because this is not really a spoiler type of a movie. Spoiler
0: alert, he he grew up to be Steven Spielberg.
1: He did not because this character's name is Sammy Fableman. Mm. The shot at the end of that sequence, which is this traumatic family meeting where the parents announce the divorce and you see Sammy Fableman's perspective as he's sort of got this glazed look taking in all of the emotional upheaval and he pictures himself with a movie camera and that image in his head of the movie camera is this protective distance yeah. from the event it's his way of reconfiguring things that he can't really tolerate in their reality i thought that the john williams score in that scene was scoring that complex and ambivalent role of the movie camera Mm -hmm. his life is sort of through the pane of glass of this movie making here's kind of this glassy emotional representation of the moment of the divorce
0: Yeah, I think that's nice. And I think this cue is also about him processing what his mother means to him and what that means about his ambitions about movie making. He's coming into a more adult sense of that, which is why the sincerity of that power and that emotion is approaching depictions in this movie of him thinking about movies, where the score was far away from that in the beginning of the movie.
1: There's an earlier cue where after he gets uh, beaten up by the bully. His parents are clearly tense and there's no room for him to say how unhappy he is. He's in bed at night trying to find something to cling to and he takes his camera and runs it in his ear so he can just listen to the comforting clicking. And there's music representing, again, I think, this equivocal relationship to the camera. Is it a good thing that he has this outlet or is it a bad thing because it's not directly dealing with the things around him? The whole movie is not as straightforwardly pro-movie-making as you might expect. It's never anti-movie-making, but it does represent it as a complex emotional presence in his life. It'll
0: tear you apart.
1: That's right. That's right. There's this wonderful scene. I thought it was wonderful. Of course.
0: The Academy thought it was wonderful, too.
1: Where Judd Hirsch shows up for 10 minutes. got
0: a nomination out of it.
1: Yeah, and good for him. Of course. Yeah. And gives this slightly over the top, but that's the whole point, performance of the kind of prophecy of doom that comes down upon Sammy's head, telling him that his love for art is going to tear him up.
0: Art is no game. Art is dangerous as a lion's mouth that'll bite your head off.
1: And this scene, I thought wonderfully, it's not scored with John Williams, it's scored with the music from the other room, and the music from the the other room is a Clementi sonatina. it's one of these simple pieces that everyone learns from, you know, the Shermer Sonatina album or something. All of the pieces that his mother plays in this movie were pieces from my childhood. Yeah,
0: I played all these things. I think that must've been deliberate, right? Sure, the Clementi
1: and the Be- I definitely played that Beethoven, I definitely played the Haydn, that's in the end credits. I thought it was probably deliberate that he picked not impressive concert pieces. She says, oh, this is a difficult piece and I have to play it on TV it's not really that difficult a piece (laughs) it's a piece that gets given to young pianists
0: right i played this when i was 11 or something
1: all of the pieces that she's playing are kind of low intermediate pieces that would remind a piano playing kid of their childhood and it certainly was resonant for me i grew up in a house where either i was playing pieces like that at the piano or you know there was piano music coming from the other room while i was focusing on something in my room and I don't know how personal it was to me, but it absolutely conjured up a sense of someone being emotionally real with me, showing me a childhood as it really was and felt. Mm -hmm. And then to score this kind of intense encounter with the great uncle, with Clementi, and then the Clementi continues into the next scene when he's getting in the cab to leave the juxtaposition there of this real musical object but also all of the emotional space that takes place in a house Mm -hmm. that you know no piece of music can cover it all that really worked wonderfully for me and it's because of things like that that i felt that john williams adding the sound of john williams right And this score really is the sound of John Williams. You know, These are sounds that we've heard in other John Williams scores. It's a mode that John Williams can go to of delicacy and intimacy. I feel
0: like Spielberg just let him write what was in his heart, just let him be as John Williams as he wanted. I felt like there couldn't have been much direction at all. Just like, be lovely here. Will you be lovely here for me, John? And this is just the simple and unassuming loveliness
1: I think the rest of the music is, in a sense, a direction. I think that knowing that he was going to be in company with the Schirmer Sonatina album and movie scores of the 50s and 60s that were of interest to young Stephen, that was his direction. How can you fit among these things and represent stirrings of the heart or a kind of a dreamlike perception of the deeper emotional undercurrents within that world? I saw William said about the dance that the mother, the music for the dance that Mitzi does. He said this is a kind of music that slows down your emotions so that you sort of perceive all of life because you go into a, a.
0: A dream, I think he said.
1: A dream. That seems like it's the role of the music in this movie. It wants to be the depiction of moments of access to a sense. Of one's own narrative. Mm. That's a real emotional experience. Yeah,
0: well, that's what I'm saying that the Williams music is the concept of turning life into a movie, which he distilled out of his mother's passion and idiosyncrasies. The idea of narrativizing something is the core, is the thing that we're coming to this movie to see. And here, let me um, let me beat my dumb metaphor to death here. If the Williams score in this, representing this undercurrent of dreamlike narrative power and emotionality, is the shark in this movie, then all of those very carefully chosen piano pieces and the bits of real scores from the 50s and 60s and all of that other music that we hear in the movie, those are the barrels.
1: I'm just resisting this because I thought it was to the movie's great credit that it was not a parade of we all know who I am. We all know what no, I okay, made. No, it really so was wasn't. No, no, I'm doing yeah. it. I'm, he didn't do it.
0: I'm not, saying, I'm not saying that Spielberg did it. I'm doing it. He absolutely did not do that except for this one spot we're about to except talk about. Except for right at the very end. <laughs> but no, this is my dumb metaphor and not Spielberg's to be very clear but I feel like these like stand-ins for the idea of music, you know, having narrative power. That's what all of these piano pieces and all of these score clips and all of these pop songs are. They're evoking the power of music without being the real power of music that he lets Williams be. He lets Williams inhabit the deep crux of how strongly he feels about making a narrative and channeling emotion. That's the deep thing that he really, really means. And all of these other pieces are, you know, tied on ropes and floating off of it.
1: I kind of landed it. Come on. <laughs> I mean, even setting aside the Jaws... I don't know if that's true because, as you said, this crucial scene where Sammy is reviewing footage of the camping trip, it is scored with the music from the other room in a very careful and emotionally full way. It's not just counter-programming. It's very much scoring a kind of turnover inside of him with this stately, slow, Baroque music. which, yes, it's credited to Bach, but it's actually not really by Bach because it's just one of these pieces that Bach transcribed totally intact from the actual piece, which is by Alessandro Marcello. So shout out to Alessandro Marcello, who doesn't get any credit in this movie, but that's his music. Anyway, they actually took the time to have a little insert where it slows down because his heartbeat is slowing down or possibly speeding up. Somehow his perception of time is changing as he has this realization and starts reviewing the footage and the camera pushes in closer and closer. I thought that was beautifully done and I'm sure there would have been a way to do this with John Williams music, but it felt even more of a piece with the whole movie that, you know, most of these emotions are not coming from on high or coming from outside or coming from the camera of this movie, the fableness that we're watching. They're coming from the world he's in.
0: Mm -hmm. All right. So I've been torturing this Jaws metaphor partially because, yes, we learned that.
1: Yeah. Well, before I learned it, I speculated about it. I heard this. I I did too all right, here's something to not spoil. The very end has a cute scene at the end that I won't spoil. And then- I mean, I
0: thought it was wonderful, the thing that happens at the very end.
1: Yeah, it's delightful. And it sends you out of Sammy Fableman's childhood into a future that, yes, 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 we all know whose future it is, with the only- really fanciful cue in the whole score.
0: It's certainly the fastest the score ever gets. It's the most active.
1: Right, and it's the most orchestra. It's just suddenly, all right, here's some movie music, because we've kind of entered the realm of putting a little bow on my memoir and sending you off with a wink. (laughs) Wink!
0: I mean, I think he was also partially inspired to do it because there is a little wink in the closing moments of the picture, and he wanted to put us in the mood to receive that.
1: Right. So there is, at this very moment, a uh, thing that I thought, that's either a musical wink or John Williams doesn't even know because he can't stop doing John Williamsy things. And then we finally got absolute confirmation, he said so in the LA Times, that it was very much intentional. In fact, that it used to be even more blatant. And they toned it down to what I think is a completely appropriately subtle level, that the rhythm of sending Sammy off into his life is an allusion to indeed Jaws.
0: To the out to sea music, there goes the Orca.
1: That's right, there goes Sammy out to sea into his future.
0: and then the end credits start and the end credits start with yeah this Haydn sonata it's a piano sonata
1: that like I said I played as a kid oh so did I for sure of course everybody played this one and that's the point right that's what it means here that's why it's being quoted but it's
0: not just being quoted it's being sort of transformed into a piano concerto there's an orchestra in here suddenly I I was kind of fooled for a moment thinking, oh yeah, that's right, I guess this was a concerto. I guess my teacher probably played the piano reduction. No, (laughs) this is just a piano sonata, you know, a solo piano piece
1: that... uh, He just starts he brings in the strings behind it and fills it out and has has fun writing a couple measures of his own, but he's mostly very respectful and just lets the piece play as it is. Sure,
0: but he morphs it into an orchestra piece. And then that's sort of the entry point back into his original material for the rest of the credits. Then later in the end credits, towards the very end of the credit crawl, there's this stuff that sounds even more like a piano concerto with this filigreed embroidery of piano sparkling around the orchestra and you know the piano has been his mother's instrument this whole movie and i felt like this was a final statement of the influence of his mother being you know fully incorporated into the creative expression
1: so this whole last section has been presenting a theme that is heard I think I'm right in saying exactly once in the body of the movie right Uh uh-huh
0: yeah I think that's right
1: this is the only bit of this music I had heard prior to seeing the movie in some sort of roundup of the scores of the year and you know John Williams the Fablemans and they played this little tune I thought oh I guess that's the theme from the movie it is just the music in one scene near the end and yet it is the theme of the movie I think just that shaping, I think, is profound. That That's what this movie is. I lived this life and life doesn't have a tune, but in some moments, it seems like maybe you can hear the tune of your life. Just special moments, just every now and then. And it might be this. I just found this immensely moving this one scene where this tune you haven't heard before and won't hear again showed up and I read William saying that when he played this for Spielberg Spielberg teared up and said I didn't expect anything like that for this scene
2: Please please because how am I ever going to forgive myself I can't I I I
1: I forgive you The eggs are burning It just got me. There's something magical about what's going on here. And part of what's magical about it is that this tune is nice, but it's not remarkable in any way other than its purity of choosing this voice, this moment, this way of speaking. That's right. It's the purity of the
0: choosing. That is really what I took away from here is that Yeah, of course all of this Not all that much music That Williams wrote for this movie Is lovely and accomplished And beautiful to listen to And confidently written But it's not particularly remarkable music It's not like the most special stuff he's done. It's stuff that, you know, he's approached many times, many, many times. You know, the little moment of touching wonder or a little tune on a piano with just-so string accompaniment. He's done those things millions of times and he's still got it. They sound really good. What made this a special experience for me though was the purity of the choosing. Yes, exactly as you said to speak in this voice, to speak in this voice at these very specific times, and to let it contain these very specifically circumscribed emotions and emotional directions.
1: So Monica dumped me. Quite honestly, I have teared up yeah, multiple times listening to this tune after having mm-hmm. seen the movie. When I heard it before huh? having seen the movie, I thought, well, that sounds pretty, and it sounds like a lot of other stuff he's written. There, and once I saw what she it did. meant in the movie, yeah. it now makes me well up, and I have been thinking to myself, why? What am I welling up about? The closest I can get is that this is the thing I'm complaining about uh, <laughs> all of the prior scores. <laughs> this is the antidote. This is what I'm asking yeah. for for someone to speak to me and then they don't even have to be being exceptional in any way Mm -hmm. there's something so meaningful about someone speaking and what does speaking mean in music it's something to do with knowing that melody communicates every turn of this melody is more voice he has meant every one of these turns. And you don't have to say, well, I've never heard a melody that's so perfect as that. No, but it's someone and he's talking. And when it goes up and then it goes up higher, that's with meaning and that meaning is imparted to the relationship of mother and son in this profound way by being so intended. And this thing at the end of the melody, familiar John Williams thing, where he has this turn figure and the turn figure repeats a couple of times. this soothing voice saying something and saying it again and it's okay and there's something so so human about that simple going around again and it applies to this scene in just a magical way Something it reminded me of from our podcast history was when I was waxing sentimental about the end of the best years of our lives. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When Homer says, can you handle it? Can you stand what I am? And then Friedhofer just plays the simple, simple love theme again. That kind of placement of, this is what music is like. It's melodies. It goes like this. It goes like that. For a reason. From me to you. Ah, I felt like... I was so glad to get this movie at the end of this run. Not that I had problems with all of them. You know, I liked everything everywhere for what it was. And I liked uh, Banshees. And as I said, I liked it even more on returning and seeing that it was constructed with such care. But yeah, how many times in this episode did I say, you know, where is where's a human coming to talk to me through the music because they could. Mm-hmm. And here was John Williams, who's 90 years old, doing the thing he always does. And I was so, so grateful. What have we learned?
0: Well, I have been ruefully turning over my declaration from the beginning of this episode that this is the worst crop of nominees. I don't know. I mean, it certainly sounded like that was definitely going to be true for the first couple movies. But yes, both of us liked all three of the last movies that we talked about and their scores. And we had admiring things to say about all of them. Mm -hmm. You know, still, (laughs) like we were saying all of them have some sort of a limitation on them in terms of our full-throated enthusiasm, right? Banshees is very spare, very concertedly understated and everything everywhere all at once is impressive. But like I said, you know, I came away from my first watch sort of unsure, you know, what specifically the music had been and had done, which I think was to its credit. But, you know, it was doing a different thing than others of the movies that we've talked about and loved.
1: Yeah. I didn't come away from any of those thinking, and what wonderful music.
0: Yeah, exactly right. We both had to kind of come back around again to both Banshees and everything to... Peer closer, yeah. To peer closer and realize, oh, yes, there's really good work being done here. But no, it wasn't like the special effects blockbuster where you come away saying, wow, that really had great special effects in it. That should definitely be the movie that's in the special effects category. And, you know, even as warm as the things that we have to say about Spielberg and Williams were, you know, I don't think you quite walked away from this movie saying, and the wonderful music.
1: I walked away saying, what a wonderful experience I had, and I was so glad that music was there. Of course. Being a part of it. Of course. But that's different from thinking, I just heard the best music of the year.
0: Exactly right. And there was not very much of it, as powerful as that was. So, I don't know, maybe there is something to what I was saying that... Even the things that we liked had there. Uh,
1: None of these felt like a thing that, gosh, they have to get up on the stage and right. receive an award for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just like various movies, some of which had reasonably good music in them. Yeah. I just didn't feel like I was at an awards show. But why should I? <laughs>
0: All right. Well, do you have any thoughts about what you would have liked to have seen nominated for this award show?
1: No, you always do. Let's hear.
0: I don't always do. But like there was other stuff on the short list for this nomination that I think... <laughs> would have been more interesting to talk about than some of the things that we talked about. I mean, we've talked a lot about Disblas scores on these Oscar shows. He's still doing super-duper lovely work here this year for Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Mm-hmm. I think it would have been really interesting for us to talk about Hilda Good and the Daughter doing something totally different-sounding than Joker for Women Talking. And again, I'll single out Michael Uh uh Abels, who does the scores for Jordan Peele's movies. His score for Nope, you know, it was, for much of the movie, it wasn't to the fore. But I'm going to go ahead and nominate the cue for the climactic action sequence at the end of that movie. I'm going to nominate that for the best single cue of the year. That was just terrific, the way that he was able to make it sound like this is a sci-fi movie that you don't quite know what to make of, and it's a Western movie that you do know what to make of, and they play against each other in this super
1: fun way. I thought that was spectacular. So are we even going to put ourselves through this? Yeah, let's just do it
0: quickly. All right. <laughs> what would you vote for if you, if you got a vote?
1: I don't know. I basically would be fine if any of the latter three win. Yeah, that's where I am. Because those are all nice work. Nice work that I was grateful for.
0: That's where I am. I would narrow it down for me to either Everything Everywhere All at once or The Fablemans. And I might lean towards giving it to Sun Lux just because of how much work that they did and how wonderful a movie experience I thought that it was and how impressed I was with the scope of things that they were able to bring off.
1: Do you think that is... At all likely.
0: I kind of do. Oh. I kind of do. Look, I could be wrong here, but I kind of feel like that movie has momentum building to it. I think it is an award show darling, and I wouldn't be surprised if the score went along for the ride. I don't think Babylon is going to get it because people didn't like that movie very much. I don't think All Quiet on the Western Front is going to get it because, come on, the nomination was enough. I don't think Carter Burwell is going to get it because it's...
1: Yeah, it's off to the side. It's off to the side.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I could, I could see Williams getting it as a lifetime achievement award for him and for his collaboration with Spielberg. And of course, I would be happy to see that.
1: Odd though it would be for a 14-minute score. Exactly.
0: But, you know, it's a Judy Dench effect kind of a thing that's where i am
1: i feel like by the john rule of how to predict what people are going to vote for they're going to vote for the one that it took the least effort to remember it had music in it Mm -hmm. i think that that is all quiet on the western front because it starts by going blah 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 and everyone goes oh the music just did something and then they remember that later so I think they might vote for that. Is that your pick? Uh, Close enough. I don't know. Yeah. As I've said before, this is like, you know, watching animals run around. I I don't know what they're going to do. They do whatever <laughs> they want. Yeah. It is as meaningless to me what wins as it seems to be meaningless to the Academy what they nominate. But yes, I would be obviously heartwarmed to see John Williams get up there on the stage. And I would feel like good for Carter Burwell finally winning an award. And yes, if Sun Lux wins for Everything Everywhere All at Once because it's that movie's night, I'll feel like, well, it was a remarkable. Remarkable movie, so way to go. <laughs> great. And then I will probably turn off the TV. No, I'll stick around to watch and see if there's any hilarious mishaps. How could I not?
0: <laughs> the best thing to happen to the Oscars in recent memory, the hilarious mishaps.
1: If by mistake Babylon is announced as best picture and then it turns out not to be.
0: That would be pretty great, you got to admit. It seems
1: very unlikely. <laughs> yeah. Since it's not even nominated. <laughs> so John, shall we do the lottery now? No, we did it already. Correct. Oh. The answer is for a change. <laughs> you confuse me. We inserted this episode. Before an already scheduled episode. So there is no lottery at the end now. You just have to keep sitting tight and waiting for the upcoming episode that is still about The Day the Earth Stood Still.
0: Which we, uh, you know, got some part of the ways towards uh, prepping. We
1: we got well along the path and then we looked at the schedule and said we'd be crazy. And then we
0: realized, oh, we better get the Oscar one out first. But uh, we're going to turn our attention to that as soon as this is done. And uh, I am still looking forward to talking about that with you.
1: And I to talking about that with you. Thank you.
0: Boy, oh boy. We, uh, we started this episode out saying, I wonder if we can do it short.
1: The results of that experiment are coming in here. Let me just... Andy, that look. experiment? No, no, no. We have results. Let me, let me see what the printout says. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, Does it say
0: catastrophic failure?
1: It says the experiment was a success. Uh-huh. And the results are that we could not make it short.
0: Sorry, I I apologize to everyone, but most of all to ourselves. (laughs) Boy, oh boy, this has been a lot.
1: For those of you who made it through to this point, thank you. For those of you who stopped listening because the first two segments were so negative, Come on back, listen to the rest. Oh, wait, it doesn't work that way. They won't hear this. <laughs> Tell your friends who stopped listening after the first two segments that the rest of it was more positive. And thank you for listening just in general. We appreciate it very much.
0: Thank you for listening in general. Thank you for telling your friends to listen in the form of writing us reviews, which helps other people to come to the show, and we really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Thank you for joining us on Patreon if you care to, where you can hear bonus content that we've prepared about other things, other movies that aren't in our main feed. In fact, on Patreon, you can hear some stuff that was cut out of this episode and was lying around on our cutting room floor.
1: Believe it or not, there was even more.
0: It boggles the mind. And if you're a patron, you can vote to help narrow down the candidates for what we pull out of the bucket. Ooh, ooh, ooh. And, Hmm. and we got merch. You want a t-shirt with our logo on it? Not really. Yeah, that seems to be everybody's attitude. But you can you can get it anyway! Look us up on Redbubble.
1: If you want to get in touch with us, if you want to share your thoughts or suggest movies that should go on our list, email us at scoresettlers at gmail.com.
0: Thanks so much, everybody. Thanks, thanks for bearing with us. It's been a lot.
1: Enjoy the Oscars. Maybe. Good night. Good night, everybody.